uh, that she did originally. And we've been continually releasing these documents and investigations in spaces and in content. So Millie will be here, I'm sure, just shortly. I already see her out here retweeting, so she'll be back here in a minute. And um, we're going to kind of get going. Jen, how are you? Um, I'm going to come to you and uh, maybe we can touch on a couple breaking things that are happening today while we wait. Uh, it's been a big news day. Um, huge, actually. So this Jeff DeWitt story that came out, uh, if you guys are not familiar with it, Jeff DeWitt, uh, GOP chair out here in Arizona, uh, pa- apparently they've released uh, proof and recordings of them uh, basically trying to bribe Carrie Lake not to run. And these receipts are going absolutely nuclear. I knew this was coming. So uh, it's been really interesting and, and it's absolutely huge. That's one of the stories. Yeah, Jen, go ahead. No, I'm so glad you brought that up, Trash, because that's what I was going to bring up first of all is, holy shit, if you haven't gone and listened to the Jeff DeWitt audio, you are missing out. And if you think this is an isolated case in politics where this is only Carrie Lake that is getting done to her, no, this is what's happening nationwide. This is what's happening in all these races. This is why we don't have good people in politics, um, because not everybody's like Carrie Lake. Not everybody had the wherewithal to record something like that, A. And B, a lot of times people would love to sit on the board and get paid a millions and upon millions of dollars, you know, and not have to go through the horrible campaign season. And, and we don't hear these backstories, but this is a perfect example of what we've been dealing with in politics for years and the amount of corruption and the level of corruption um, really was just exposed. And uh, Jeff DeWitt, he's always been a piece of shit, so it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Oh, believe me. As a, as a Maricopan, if you will, a Maricopa County resident here in Arizona, I can concur. And, you know, the whole Republican squishy establishment here in Arizona, the McCainites, is like we like to call them, the leftover, you want to talk about rhinos or, or even worse, uh, that is what Maricopa County is, and that's how it got to the place it's gotten. And we've seen the evidence of this in the last three, four elections. And so, uh, but it really came to the forefront in 2020 and again in 2022. So, and then you can see how the system works. Even our own state reps that are supposed to be Republican, our own board of supervisors, all these people that basically worked anything they could to do anything they can to not only call on the 65 Project to go after Brian, who's one of uh, Carrie Lake's attorneys. I was talking to him at a happy hour. We were all meeting about election integrity, I don't know, two, three months ago. And uh, they're coming after him and just everything that's going on uh, to see it come out in public. This is just uh, I'm, I'm here for it. It's a great story. And if you guys think that that's explosive, just wait till we get into what we got here today. I'm not even kidding. Like, I'm not being dramatic. You guys know I'm not dramatic. I undersell more than I should. And I'm telling you, this is massive. Go ahead, Jen. Yeah, Trash, I just wanted to point out the veiled threat contained in that audio, which Jeff DeWitt 100% should be investigated with. Um, And it also raises this level of American politicians working with the cartel. If you notice in that audio recording, he he goes out of his way to point out to Kerry that the cartel operates in all 50 states and he keeps talking about the cartel. That's a veiled threat. That is a veiled threat, and that's why Carrie Lake turns around and says, well, they're going to have to kill me because I'm not doing this. Yeah, and if you remember, there was a, I think his name is Joseph Phelan. He came out with some investigation about cartels and Katie Hobbs, and I think that half the people kind of wrote it off like, yeah, this, I, I'm not really sure what you got going on here. 
And then you start hearing this audio. You're like, wait a minute. Like, whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> what are we really talking about here? And if you guys don't want to talk about there's, I think his name is Joseph Phelan, P-H-E-L-A-N, I think is what his name was. And he came out with this massive report. They had a hearing on it about cartels and Katie Hobbs, who's our supposed governor, uh, absolute blue-haired goofball nutbag. But uh, yeah, so this is a fascinating story. Uh, there's something else I'm going to talk about, but I'm only going to talk about it because I need to address it because I deleted a post about it. But Storm, you joined the panel. If you want to you chime in here while we're waiting for Millie. Yeah, I just want to figure out, can you hear me? Yeah, you sound good. Oh, amazing. We're just happy to be here, Jen, Trash. Good to see you. Sorry, T-Rash and Cheryl and Vinny. Uh, I just can't wait for the panel. Uh, I know that uh, I am moving out to Arizona. So, Trash, can't wait to uh, be a fellow neighbor and figure out how to fight the good fight with you. So uh, give it about four months and our whole family is going to be out there. Can't wait. Well, man, we need all the help we can get out here. I'm telling you. And I'll, I'll get you I'll get you hooked up with the right people to be able to join in on the fight here. We've got a lot of really, really fantastic people. I want to give a special shout out to Shelby Bush. Uh, I believe Jen knows her. And we're going to be pushing hard for her to get GOP chair out here. Uh, Jen, you had a little bit of history with Shelby. And, and, and uh, Millie, welcome to the stage. I'm just kind of prepping and priming here. We're just kind of talking about some of the breaking stories from today. This massive story about the bribery scheme for Carrie Lake, trying to bribe her off kind of what we're touching on but uh yeah shelby bush has done a ton of work for election integrity out here you had some experience with her jen didn't you yeah dustin i know shelby well uh she's always been an amazing patriot she she's done so much hard work uh not just around this the newer stuff but even going back to the tea party days she's been around a long time and i'm really happy to see that she's uh trying to be gop chair and we would be happy to help yes let's go so, yeah, man, Storm, can't wait. Uh, we'll link up when you get out here. Pretty excited for that. So, okay, Millie, uh, one more one more thing. Let me address something. Uh, I put out a tweet. It was a video of this guy. Sound like an Australian accent. He's reviewing, a, some, I guess, some new January 6th footage, and there's a hallway scene where it looks like <clears throat> one of the Capitol Police officers tosses a magazine into the hallway, and then there's a gun laying on the ground around all these cops. Uh, I put it out there because I was like, wow, that's pretty crazy. But I, I think I'm, I, I deleted it because I really want to pull it back. I'm going to need some verification, and I don't want to be one of the first people on it. I'd rather be right. So I, I, pull, I deleted it. I put it down. I just don't know enough about it yet. Um, it seems like a big story that I'm just not willing to, to grab onto until I have a little bit more receipts. So anyway, I just wanted to address that. Okay. Millie joined us. Welcome. And uh, guys... Uh, if you go down to the purple pill, if you guys could retweet the space, we've got about 220 people in here already. So thank you guys for coming in. Uh, we're going to, this is probably going to blow up and the story is going to be absolutely crazy. <clears throat> I just, I, I'm telling you, this is going to be insane and I'm glad you're here to hear it. Uh, and a lot of hard work and, and dedication and investigation all the way back to the sunrise zoom call goes to Millie. So Millie, thanks. Thanks for coming. Here we go. Ready? All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, thanks everyone for coming here today. All right. So I just posted it. I just published the article. Um, I was like getting it out very last minute. Um, but you know, this is something that literally it's been taking like forever to really put this, all of this together, compile all of this information together. Um, so I just want to kind of preface with it is going to be a rather long article, a long read, and I'd like you to think of it more of like uh, almost like an um, a real actual journal in that most of it is literally just, you know, it, it's pretty, I try to keep away from as much opinion as possible and really just kind of 
let them say it in their own words. So you're going to notice that there's a lot of quoting throughout this article. Um, but yeah, there's a lot here to kind of unpack. So um, let me see. I tweeted out the article. This is something that you guys are probably go going to want to. If you are at home, you're probably going to want to look at it on your desktop so that you can actually, uh, you know, scroll through because a lot of the material is visual. Um, there's like a lot of documents, a lot, a lot of imagery, you know, or you can just kind of, uh, you know, we'll do our best to really kind of explain to you what's happening in the visuals. Um, and there might be some more information and more images, pictures, things that I add to this article um, tonight, if not tomorrow, just because I wasn't able to get every single piece of evidence up. Um you know, in, in a way necessarily that would be the most digestible. Um, all right. So the article's out. It's called Far Left U.S. Government Employees Conspire to Subvert President Trump, Gum Up should, Bureaucratic Processes, Strike we, and Leak to the Media. Should we, Millie, should we give a primer on this before we get into it a little bit? Yeah, I, I think that's a good idea. I think that, um, you know, what, what, were your think, what were you thinking as far as like a primer? Well, so a couple things. Number one, I kind of just give an overview, high-level overview, quick, quick, thirty-second uh, elevator pitch on the sunrise Zoom calls, and then also, uh, I would just remind people that yesterday, if you guys are not up to date on the Hatch Act, we talked about a lot of this to kind of prime and set the table for today's uh, show, uh, because the you know the Hatch Act is very much a big part of this. We kind of went into the history with like Joseph McCarthy, Hoover, and like communists in our country, and then. You know, the Communist Act 1954. So all of these things are, are really important in the, in the context. But like to your point, it's not political. Uh, this is data driven their own words and their own documents. But if that might help. Absolutely. I think it definitely helps. And so um, I guess for as far as the structure goes of this article, um, I would say the the first half, the biggest chunk is um, entirely about the Feds for Democracy Zoom call. It was about a two hour long Zoom call in which government bureaucrats, federal employees, um, members of our government, people in high ranking positions were together in a, in a Zoom meeting conspiring to subvert President Trump and to subvert the U.S. government using uh, tactics of sabotage and subversion. Um, and then the towards the end, I kind of go into some of the other related materials in the article that kind of tie it into the election, tie it into January 6th. And I'm going to be breaking some very explosive uh, content today regarding the election, um, just that I recently found inside of their internal Google Docs that actually directly talks about illegal activities regarding ballots. Um, and also then we kind of go in towards the end, we go into like, um, you know, the backstory on the sunrise zoom calls investigation and some of the other materials that really kind of evidences the shady operas, uh, shady operations and clandestine activities that these groups were involved in. Hey, Jen, good to see you. I see you've got your hand up there, girl. Hey, Millie, good to see you too. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for being here. Um, I just wanted to give everybody a heads up. When you click on Millie's link uh, in the Jumbotron above, it's going to give you like a warning 
Um, if you scroll all the way down in tiny little letters, of course, it says proceed to the website. They've been doing this to Millie for years where like anytime she puts up a link or something, um, it, it puts up this warning message and it's hard to see that you can still proceed to the website. So if you scroll all the way down at the bottom, it'll say you can proceed to the website. And then we're also uh, streaming this on QUX, Rumble, and Pilled. So hi to everybody there. Thanks for being there. And if you guys have questions, um, we will be checking it periodically to get some of your questions answered. So thanks, guys. Yeah, and to kind of give you a reason why it's it's throwing that error message. So the Gateway Pundit experienced this. New York Post experienced this. This is all still leftover algorithm suppression from 2020. This is due to Millie's, basically Millie's reporting, not only Shadowgate, but more importantly, the Sunrise Zoom calls themselves, uh, which is one of the most censored stories on Twitter, as we saw in the Twitter files, in the top 10. And so they have basically labeled her website as malicious or whatever. And this is still left over in the algorithm. Uh, we're not here to entrap you or anything or put any spyware on your phone or your whatever device you're looking at. This is just leftover ghost code in the algorithm. And uh, you can go back to the Twitter files and verify it for yourself. Sunrise Zoom calls were one of the most um, uh, heavily banned. Which government bureaucrats, federal employees, um, members of our government, people in high-ranking positions were together in a, in a Zoom meeting conspiring to subvert President Trump and to subvert the U.S. government using uh, tactics of sabotage and subversion. Um, and then the towards the end, I kind of go into some of the other related materials in the article that kind of tie it into the election, tie it into January 6th. And I'm going to be breaking some very explosive uh, content today regarding the election, um, just that I recently found inside of their internal Google Docs that actually directly talks about illegal activities regarding ballots. Um, and also then we kind of go in towards the end, we go into like, um, you know, the backstory on the Sunrise Zoom calls investigation and some of the other materials that really kind of evidences the shady operas, uh, shady operations and clandestine activities that these groups were involved in. Hey, Jen, good to see you. I see you've got your hand up there, girl. Hey, Millie, good to see you too. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for being here. Um, I just wanted to give everybody a heads up. When you click on Millie's link uh, in the Jumbotron above, it's going to give you like a warning. Um, if you scroll all the way down in tiny little letters, of course, it says proceed to the website. They've been doing this to Millie for years where like anytime she puts up a link or something, um, it, it puts up this warning message and it's hard to see that you can still proceed to the website. So if you scroll all the way down at the bottom, it'll say you can proceed to the website. And then we're also uh, streaming this on QUX, Rumble, and Pilled. So hi to everybody there. Thanks for being there. And if you guys have questions, um, we will be checking it periodically to get some of your questions answered. So thanks, guys. Yeah, and to kind of give you a reason why it's it's throwing that error message. So the Gateway Pundit experienced this. New York Post experienced this. This is all still leftover algorithm suppression from 2020. This is due to Millie's, basically Millie's reporting, not only Shadowgate, but more importantly, the Sunrise Zoom calls themselves, uh, which is one of the most censored stories on Twitter, as we saw in the Twitter files, in the top 10. And so they have basically labeled her website as malicious or whatever. And this is still left over in the algorithm. Uh, we're not here to entrap you or anything or put any spyware on your phone or your whatever device you're looking at. 
This is just leftover ghost code in the algorithm. And uh, you can go back to the Twitter files and verify it for yourself. Sunrise Zoom calls were one of the most um, uh, heavily banned and censored stories ever uh, in, on Twitter. Yeah, or you guys could, if you don't want to click on the link through Twitter, you could just go to millennialmillie.com and then you will find the article as the most recent article on my website. So you can just directly go there or you can click through Twitter's little attempt to block my my website, which there's no real reason for that. Um, that, you know, it originally wasn't like that. And then it started up when a lot of the censorship stuff got out of hand on Twitter. Um, so, yeah. But anyway, I guess we could kind of lay the groundwork here for this article. Um, you know, I really thought, you know, this could be something to do a, a a Twitter files or I guess a Twitter thread on. Um, but the reality is, is just, there's so many PDFs, so, so many long videos. Uh, it really would be, it, it would be very much unfeasible to try to condense it all into like a Twitter thread, for example. So yeah, the best way for me to kind of get this material out um, is definitely just kind of doing it through an article where I can house, um, you know, longer videos and, and PDFs and things of, of that sort. All right. Well, um, kind of give like a backstory. Um, you know, we did a space the other day talking about the Hatch Act and certain laws. And I think that it's important to kind of, um, I guess, briefly touch on what the Hatch Act is before we jump into this, because for you guys, it might not make as much sense. I mean, I think that most people hearing this will, will think that this definitely sounds shady and subversive, but they won't understand how much of an issue it is, how much of a problem it is when we have government employees inside of our government um, acting with politi- in a politically partisan way and like subverting our own government's um, policies and um, activities that are going on inside the government. So um, let me kind of read over some of the Hatch Act rules. I think some of the main ones that um, may apply here would be they, that you may not use official authority to interfere with an election while engaged in political activity. As a federal employee, you may not invite subordinate employees to political activity or any person with business before the agency. Um, as a federal employee, you may not knowingly solicit or discourage the political activity of any person with business before the agency. As a federal worker, you may not engage in political activity while on duty in the workplace, wearing uniform or official insignia, or in a government vehicle. And you may not wear, display, or distribute partisan materials or items. And you may not perform campaign-related chores. Um, so that's really kind of key here. Um, and then I guess we have a lot of other people that we've invited up into the space that should probably be in here um, later on that are going to possibly be able to clue you guys in from their pr- perspective as federal workers on how th- how the Hatch Act would apply in some of these instances so, um, you know, if, if those people come in here, um, I will definitely give them the floor to speak, to be able to kind of interject um, throughout this article when I'm reading over it. Uh, if you guys note or see anything that you think is, um, you know, absolutely wrong or illegal or that could get somebody fired. All right. So I guess, um, do you think we did enough groundwork? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, I think that I would also point out uh, the reporting that we did 
regarding the training sessions uh, that we've released that came out of the same documents where they had to have these Marxist training sessions with federal employees and they break them up by agency and title and who to bring in as far as like activists to be able to hold these meetings and how to have them basically slowly slow walking people into Marxist ideology that are federal workers. So if you guys want to check that out, uh, I believe that's in my profile. I'll go check. I'll go get it and put it down in the chat. You can take a look at that as well. So but I think that's I think I think we've pretty much set the ground here at this point, Millie. All right. Well, let's let's dig into this. All right. So the title of this article is which it sounds pretty ambitious, but after you see all the evidence here, all the evidence, it's a very fitting title. Far left U.S. government employees conspired to subvert President Trump, gum up bureaucratic processes, strike and leak to the media. Um, All right. So a network of radical Marxist bureaucrats conspired in secret meetings, plotting how to use their official positions inside the U.S. government to enact their political agenda. Um, all righty. So days before the November 2020 election, a secret meeting took place between a group of subversive Marxists inside the U.S. federal government, military intelligence community and White House in participation with far left protest organizations and union leaders. The topics revolved around two main objectives. One, pre-planning for potential coup scenarios in the upcoming 2020 election where Trump contests the election due to mail-in ballots or election irregularities. And two, advising federal workers for tactics on how to covertly subvert the U.S. government from the inside. The nearly two-hour-long Zoom meeting was recorded by an infiltrator that was embedded inside the Sunrise Movement and navigated their way up the left-wing affinity group structure. And, and just to kind of give some context here, this was somebody, this was basically, you know, somebody who I had tasked to infiltrate this organization. A Zoom meeting workshop titled Feds for Democracy took place on the evening of October 28th, 2020, that was hosted by Democracy Kitchen and Feds for Democracy. The meeting was led by Laura Adams and Nadine Block, with special speakers Maddie Salzman, Maria Steffen, and Sarah Sturette. At its peak, about 150 participants were on the call. Some participants used anonymous names and kept their screens off, while others used their full names and had their cameras enabled or photos of themselves visible. And thankfully they did, because that's what helped us to identify people. So the next section here is remember the names. So we're going to be kind of going into, and, and this is a part where in the article, guys, there's tons of links here. So everything that I've listed in here pertaining to their background there's a a red link to and it opens up to that source material so you can verify it it makes it easier for you guys to vet it and verify it all for yourselves so laura adams so the hosts and the speakers um, laura adams from usaid united states agency for international development a phd in sociology and she's associated with pac and aaas um, Nadine Block, Direct Action Network, Ruckus Society, Shutdown DC, and BeautifulTrouble.org. So Nadine's really like a known protest organizer, very much uh, affiliated with, um, I guess you could say, left-wing actions. M- Maria Steffen, United States, sorry, the U.S. State Department, uh, United States Institute of Peace, Council on Foreign Relations, Atlantic Council and Horizons Project. Maddie Salzman, 
the Department of Energy. She works at the Department of Energy, and she's associated with Earth Advantage. And she also participated in the Inflation Reduction Act once Biden was in office in helping that. And she is um, a union member. And Sarah Sturette from the U.S. Department, she's a U.S. Department of Labor attorney and an AFGE attorney as well. And so those are the main speakers throughout the call, but but uh, they're the ones who basically really kind of did presentations, if that makes sense. But that's not everyone who spoke in the call. So these are participants who have been identified in the call. So Jody Vittori, a Georgetown professor uh, who really specializes in uh, like national security and terrorism uh, studies as a professor. Um, she was a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, um, Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, Transparency International, RUSI, NED, and Global Witness. Those are all things she's associated with. Um, Laura Robb, and, and actually Jody Vittori actually shares her private email inside the chat as well, and her picture's present. It's, yeah. Laura Robb, an analyst uh, for DHS SISA and a FDA employee. Joseph Chip Hughes from the U.S. Department of Labor and the NIEHS. Robert Schaefer, Defense Security Cooperation Agency, Presidential Management DHS, HHS, U.S. Department of Defense, National Security Council, Law Clerk for the Senate Judiciary Committee. So those are all things in his background. Um, Barbara Dale, Brookings Institute, Neil Levine, USA DRG Center, legislative assistant to Democrat Ed Fagan. Uh, that's like a retired senator now. National Defense University, director of the Office of Conflict Management and Mitigation, Effective Institution Platform Project and Center for Excellence on Democracy. Benjamin Abrams, Rise of the Masses, political sociologist, UCL, contention, and ECPR. So Benjamin, Benjamin Abrams is associated with universities in London in the UK. Annie Danger. Now this one's pretty wild. Annie Danger, Democracy at Work Institute. She's actually a trans porn star. Okay, so be careful if you click on that red link, guys, because you might not want to see what's in it. Okay, because she, you know, we're we're citing sources here. We're citing everything. Um, game theory, art, and abolitionist visions, and she also is a resistance artist. So she does art for like a lot of these left wing resistance groups. Colin Rees, Oil Change International, which I, I should say he honestly to to Annie Danger because Annie Danger is actually, I guess, a male to female transgender. Um, Colin Rees, Oil Change International, White House Council on Environmental Quality under Obama. Uh, Adam Hayes, Department of Energy, MIT, Sustain US, and Next Gen Climate. Joel Richard, Smithsonian Lead, Lead Web Developer and DFL Forum. He also specifically talks about in the Zoom call that he... Um, that he works directly with Congress regarding, like, I think, libraries. Um, Tim Nafzinger, Ziger, 
uh, Congruity Works, Oha Valley Green Coalition, Watershed Discipleship, and Showing Up for ju Racial Justice. Chris Doles, Army Corps of Engineers, IFPTE Local 98 Union President. Herberto Leon uh, works at the EPA and also uh, was a university dean and Loyola University dean as well in this past. Andrea Crooms, senior advisor, EER, DC Water board member, um, Prince George's County Department of the Environment, Michael Beer, Nonviolence International, Peace Brigade International, ACC Federation, Task Force in Governance and Election Reform, and Tiger. Margaret Alkin, Assistant Regional Counsel of the EPA. Tiana Litwak, U.S. Department of Agri Agriculture, Litwak Illustrations, American Society for Collective Rights, Smithsonian Institute Illustrator. Chris Paydock, GSA, NFFE, Independent Voters of Illinois, War Resisters League, Chicago Greens, National Federation of Federal Employees, and Citizens Taking Action. Bill Reagan, Service Employees International Union and Shutdown DC. Shavondalyn Givens, DEI ESG. So she does diversity, equity, and inclusion for NASA and affiliated with also the ACLU. Rosary Tusi, USAID, U.S. Institute of Peace, Obama National Security Council Executive Office, UNICEF, United Nations. Elizabeth Wyand, U.S. Department, HHS, PFRH, the National Abortion Federation. Um, and then Rachel Goldstein, Energy Innovation, 350.org, Solar Energy Industries Association, and green corps. And so that's kind of, I think you do have kind of a mix of some green energy corporate connections also intermingling in this with um, people from, I guess, government positions. Hey, Millie. Millie. Yeah, had, I, had a, I had a request from someone. Can you say the name and what their position was at NASA again, please? Yeah, that was Siobhan Givens. So she does um, diversity, equity, and inclusion for ESG, and she also does diversity, equity, and inclusion for NASA. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, real quick, yeah. Millie, we're going to try to move this. Uh, we're going to try to move your article over to American Mission. It's being attacked like crazy. It's throwing all kinds of warnings and stuff. Like that, your your site is under attack right now. Just so everyone's clear of what's happening, because this is nuts. It shouldn't be. Um, I mean, Twitter always has a no. thing where it tells you like to click to continue. No. So no, 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 no. Um, so what it's doing is, <laughs> I'll just tell you. I, I tried to load it on three different browsers on my computer, uh, all all the same, as well as when I load it from and I go through the warning, it basically blanks out. It blanks out the uh, the website. It won't load it. So it like it, it'll show a little bit and then it just won't load. It's Okay, um, that's really weird. Let me see if I can figure out um, what to do with that. Let me see. I've never had that problem before. 
Oh, wow. Okay, no, it just says warning link may be unsafe. I can click through it. It it just does that thing where so it's... Tra Millie, Trash and I are getting a bunch of messages on the back end from people who not are not able to even get into the website. Well, how do we know those are trolls? I'm experiencing it myself. Okay, yeah, so maybe... No, like, these are our friends in this space who are trying to get to your article who can't open it. That's what we're saying. So what we're going to do, we'll try to get through this, guys, as uh, best we can. Um, we'll try to get... Please stop sending this to me. I understand I'm addressing it. Um, so I, I think what we can just keep doing is trying to go through it, and then we've got somebody on the back end that's trying to... Uh, load it into another site as well uh, that does not have all this on it because it's under attack completely right now. Right. And it, it might help if you just go directly to the website instead of going. Um, yeah, Millie, I'm telling you, I went to four different browsers on my computer. It's doing the same thing. I, I'm trying to tell you. Okay, weird. So maybe there's like a DDoS attack or something on it. Highly possible. It's possible. Well, anyway, I'm just going to continue whatever the attack is. I'm not going to let it stop me going over this material. So, of course not. Okay. All right. So, all right. And then I do kind of link out some of the participants in here that um, haven't been 100% confirmed, but that they match the profile. And I kind of leave a little disclaimer here. So some participants didn't have legible pictures or video present on the Zoom call. Therefore, we can't positively confirm their identities. When And some of them did have pictures, but it's just I wasn't able to get a match with, you know, um, specific facial recognition software and wasn't able to find them. So when you see possible match, these are people um, that I found with the same name that fit the profile. However, I'm not making a claim that uh, the possible match was verified present in the Zoom call. So further investigation requiring forensics and subpoenas is necessary to accurately identify the following participants. So there's a, a, a list of names there as well, and I put a possible match. And so that's something that needs to be uh further confirmed with forensics and as well as, you know, a human essentially, meaning, you know, if you guys want to, the inter internet sleuths out there want to do some digging and see if they can um, put, put faces to some of the pictures of the individuals that I've named in that list, that's where you guys come into action here and where, you know, I, I call on the many internet sleuths, the power of the internet sleuths to identify these people for us. We need to know who these uh, swamp creatures are. All right, so um, let me let me let Magna Republic up here. Okay, all right. So Feds for Democracy Zoom call. So group norms and expectations. Nadine Block discusses security of the meeting. This is not being broadcasted anywhere. First of all, what's learned in the room can leave with you, but what is said in the room stays in the room. And finally, this meeting is off the record. Recording is not permitted. That is what Maddie Salzman said. So right off the bat, they're kind of like really kind of laying the groundwork that, you know, what's and that's exactly what uh, we had talked about earlier as far as like in the facilitators guides. Um, they specifically are following that facilitators guide format. So 
when they're saying what's learned in the room can leave with you and what is said in the room stays in the room. When Maddie Salzman is saying that she's literally referencing exactly what's scripted in their facilitator's guide for them to say. <laughs> Workshop objectives. We have two main objectives to explore defending our democracy in the federal workplace in the event that Trump attempts to steal the election. And then the second objective, very much linked to that one, is that you will leave the workshop with some next steps to prepare for post-election scenarios and with actions and tactics that you feel comfortable employing in those scenarios. So in other words, this is somewhat of a sort of information sharing, but then also very much an action planning event, quote Maddie Salzman. All right, so I'm going to play a video clip um, where they discuss safety. Here you go. Taking a couple of notes on your own safety and the safety of the others that you are working with um, tonight. Please disclose only as much information about yourself as you're comfortable with. As I mentioned earlier, feel free to keep your camera muted. Feel free to change your, your name when you're introducing yourself and breakout. Uh, use your name if you want, your agency or department if you want, or talk about what your favorite meal is. <laughs> Find a way to introduce yourself that you're comfortable with. If you're talking about um, actions that you might take yourself, uh, I encourage folks to speak hypothetically. Um, if someone were considering doing X, what, what might the problems be? That way there's no implication that that's actually something that you've said you're going to do. Just keep things hypothetical. And then if there's a discussion emerges, especially in the breakout group um, of some very specific actions that you wanna take or something that might be higher risk for people in your group, definitely um, get each other's contact information and form a signal group to talk about that. Uh, Signal's an app that's very secure and to end encryption. Um, it's a good way to communicate about anything that you wouldn't want to get out um, that might get you in trouble with your boss. So take, take those discussions um, offline. There'll be a chance at the end of the breakouts to exchange contact information with each other. All right. So notice in that, I don't know if anyone wants to comment on that one there, but notice that they're very much saying to use hypotheticals, to be a little bit cautious about what you're talking about. If there's things that you're directly wanting to talk about, you know, taking as far as higher risk activities to take those discussions offline using Signal, you'll, you'll notice that all throughout, you know, when they're talking about doing more clandestine things, they usually refer people into Signal or other private encrypted means of communication. Yes, Magna? So you got your uh, yeah, sorry, Millie, there. I was sending a, a tweet. Uh, I, I was sending a post. Um, yeah, I wanted to let you know and trash as well. Um, and I, I always I try to offer my services as much as I can, my research services. So anything, if you guys need anything, I'll, I'll lead an effort to um, help with research and anything you guys need to kind of hunt down people and places and faces and anything like that. I'm happy to use my time and my talents and my tokens for AI are all yours. Thank you for that. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, you know, it, this is something that we kind of need to bring a lot of minds together on because there's still a lot more here that could be looked into, investigated. There's a lot of, I mean, if you think about the way these groups organize, they really organize in a way that's very spread out. 
and they um they they operate in they operate in a bunch of tiny little hubs if that makes any sense so that you can't just take out the one big hub essentially and disable their entire efforts and activities um but yeah i kind of want to get back to it so let's go um let's go into this so next they do an icebreaker or a chat storm and this is essentially to after getting the the scary warning that they all got to um kind of uh to break the ice and to get people feeling united and calm so millie do you mind if i jump in real quick yeah uh so yeah i just want to point out the reason they're putting up these warnings um and stuff in, in this beginning clip is because they know what they're doing is illegal and that's why they go out of their way to point out signal with the end-to-end encryption that's why they're telling them oh only share the information like you're willing to feel free to change your name because like we don't really want people to know who's on this call but we know you have to be on this call that what they they knew going into this what they were doing was illegal 100 percent, absolutely yeah that that that's one thing you'll see that they try to be a little bit discreet but i guess as you'll also see they really fail hardly at that uh throughout this call so um they do the icebreaker uh which is where uh, laura adams tells them all to essentially uh, everyone type in your chat and then bombard the chat with like what's one thing you hope to get out of this call or what's one thing you want to come away from this call and a bunch of people blow up the chat and a bunch of them are saying solidarity and this is where you see a lot of that kind of marxist communist dog whistle stuff going on um she laughs she smiles and then she says a lot of folks looking for solidarity camaraderie hope protection like-minded people so it's kind of a, a coded way of, um, you know, just feeling like, okay, we have this, we're all in this together. We have unity here. We're, we are on the same principles of, of camaraderie and solidarity. Um, okay, so I guess we could get into the first speaker, who is Maddie Salzman. So she starts off saying, my name is Maddie. I'm a management programs analyst for the federal federal agency. I'm a, a union member. And I'm going to go ahead and play a clip here where she's talking about um, that the election as, is at risk because a lot of the topic in this is surrounding actions and activities around the election, but also around Trump. So here we go. So a high level issue, um, the election is at risk. Um, this is due to a number of factors. Uh, Donald Trump has not committed to a peaceful transfer of power. Um, instead, there's been significant fear mongering about risks associated with mail-in ballots, um, which has been rampant. Um, the election results are unlikely to be finalized on November 3rd, um, which is perhaps different than what we're used to in previous years. Um, there will likely be disagreements about which ballots should be thrown away and for what reason. Um, we've seen lots of um, court cases happening in this in many swing states around the country. And there's a chance that certain decisions around the election will take place in the courts. Um, so there's a lot going on right now. And as we're all aware, the election is now less than a week away. Um, so next slide. 
So um, I wanted to pull out a few quotes um, of what Donald Trump has said on the election. I think um, to what these leaders are actually saying and to take them seriously. Um, one of the the biggest risks I think we have is to assume people are joking or, or speaking in a way that is not serious for them. But uh, we saw in September um, Donald Trump saying that uh, he's complaining about the ballots, the ballots are a disaster, get rid of the ballots, and you have a very peaceful, there won't be a transfer, frankly, there will be a continuation. Um, and if it's a fair election, he's on board. But uh, if he sees that ballots are being manipulated, um, I can't go along with that. And that means you have a fraudulent election. Um, and this is really just setting up the ideas around, well, uh, who, who is saying ballots are manipulated and in what ways? Um, and there's a quote that maybe one of the next speakers will talk about where um, uh, when an authoritarian says something, you should believe them. And I think that's important here. So, so. One of the things uh, that I find just absolutely mind-boggling and bending about what what Maddie Salzman is saying here is she's literally, she's reading a quote from Trump where he says, if it's a fair election, she's literally, she says, if it's a fair election, he's on board. But if he sees the ballots are being manipulated, tr Trump saying, I can't go along with that. And that means you have a fraudulent election. So yet in here, you know, her whole, the whole thing that her and these others in the call are trying to paint the picture of is that Trump is an authoritarian. He's not going to accept a free and fair election results. He's not going to, um, he's not going to allow for the peaceful transfer of power, but even his own quote, he says, if it's a fair election, he's on board and she's reading that off yet. She's saying, no, he's going to try to run a coup. He's going to try to steal it. Um, go ahead, Jen, and then we'll go we'll go to you, Aaron. Yeah, I mean, I just want to point out, like, this lady isn't a fortune teller. They knew that they were going to steal the election. And all of those steps that she said, well, this will happen and this will happen, because those are the steps that are supposed to happen when an election is being stolen. It's supposed to go to the courts. It's supposed to do those things. So they knew on its face that they were stealing the election. And then this is the this is the steps that Donald Trump is going to take to try to win it back because he was the duly elected president. Like, ah. Exactly right. And actually, so for anybody listening and be like, OK, you guys are full of shit. That's not true. I'm going to put two documents down below. One was called the Transition Integrity Project. It was done by the Bergruen Institute by Nils Gilman and Rosa Brooks in August of, 20, uh, August of 2020, where they wargamed the entire election through these wargame exercises and then acted accordingly. They then produced a document called The Count. And what The Count does is what the shock troops were supposed to do on the ground once, once the election started taking place and what they were going to do to hold it back. So I'm going to put both those documents below so we don't have anybody saying this is BS because what they're talking about in this video is coming from these war games and documents. And people like Norm Eisen, Nils Gilman, Rosa Brooks, Zach Mallett, uh, Becky Bond, and many other people. So that's what that's what they're referencing here. Sorry, Mila, I just want to get some context. Oh, no, thank you for that. And, and that's exactly right. Um, they are, you will find out that throughout this, the running theme, it becomes very obvious that they are referencing 
those documents. They're referencing the Transition Integrity Partnerships document as well as the count because those are documents that they were internally sharing in their movement resources. So these are documents that they were circulating, passing around, as well as another one called Hold the Line. All of those are are in this article and you can download them inside this article on my website on millenniummillie.com. Um, so there's also, you, you know, you can also go directly there and download it as well. And we're going to get to that as well. I've got all this stuff jam-packed in this article. Um, but yeah, that's a really good point because this is exactly what they're doing. They're reading off of those materials for this PowerPoint, essentially, that they're doing inside of this workshop for federal workers. Um, all right, so we did the elections at risk. Now we're doing thwarting a coup isn't a coup, right? So you're going to notice here there's a lot of language around calling what you know calling it a coup and saying that trump is going to do a coup essentially if he contests the election um but they're saying that it's okay for them to stop it or thwart a coup and that they can take these drastic actions and even really you know they don't say it directly but throughout the call they instruct people to take illegal actions it that to them it's justified because you know, they're stopping a coup. But what you'll find out later, which I evidence is that this is all a, a, a deception tactic because this is the group of people that has been sabotaging and subverting Trump from the very beginning before he was literally even inaugurated. Okay, so I'm going to go to this clip really quick. So speaking of coups, I also want to um, be upfront that um, it is a coup to refuse to honor the results of a free and fair election. It is not a coup to act against a government or officials who are trying to prevent a legitimate transfer of power. Um, we believe that every vote must count, we must count every vote, and we must take action to protect democracy. Um, thwarting a coup is not the same thing as a coup, it's protecting democracy. Um, there's going to be a lot of narratives around what is happening, what should be happening, what do things mean? And I think it's really important to be centered in what any of us know is right. Uh, next slide. So I know that's a lot up front, <laughs> um, but really important to uh, make sure we're on the same page on. So I want to also. So that one's really interesting because um, I guess what you'll, you'll kind of notice is that they, they, they put some inflection in their voice when they speak about things. Um, when she's saying that this is going to be something that, um, you know, basically there's going to be a lot of narratives around what's happening and what should be happening and what do things mean. And I think it's really important to be centered in what any of us know is right. So this is kind of like a way of saying this is kind of going to be the narrative. This is what we're going to say. Um and so the, the highlight point here is really it is not a coup to act against the government or officials who are trying to prevent a legitimate transfer of power. We believe that every vote must count. We must count every vote. So there they go again, laying that groundwork over, um, you know, every vote must count. But see, Jen was actually really brilliant initially and in previous spaces pointing out that that it's not a free and fair election if you count every vote because that would imply that every vote was legal and we don't know if there might be illegal ballots. So kind of to kind of put that in reverse or in a different way of phrasing it, 
counting illegal or fraudulent ballots would not be a free and fair election. So that's kind of another way of, of pointing out that logical fallacy. Um, all right, so now we have power and responsibility. So this is where they're kind of emphasizing that they as federal workers have power and responsibility to act. We have power and responsibility as federal workers. Rules have meaning because we decide they do. We decide to enforce them. Maddie Salzman. The rest of the country looks to people like us in roles of kind of the norm to look at what is normal and allowable, and we can help shape a public opinion of what is right. So then they go into tactics depend on your role. So then they kind of show a little bit of that that grid that they took. You could tell they took it from that um the federal, what is it? The actions for federal activism resources for federal workers guide. Okay. Yeah. We haven't put out, we didn't put that out yet. So, <laughs> well, it's, it's in this article, so it's out okay, now. Cool. Um, but yeah, they, they put a little, uh, like tiny excerpt from that up on the screen when they were doing the zoom call and just kind of showing the people like that your tactics depend on your role. So you can take different tactics depending on which role you are inside the government. So they've got like, you know, policy enforcement, civil service versus armed services or political appointees or administrative logistics or research development and different positions in the government. You can take different tactics. Um, so here's a quote from Maddie Salzman. One important aspect is to think about what are the tactics you should take depending on your role. There's different types of roles in the federal government, and that means that there's different roles that could be appropriate for you to take. So, so that really emphasizing what are the tactics you should take. Then they go to ideas for Fed organizing. Um, and at that point, they say we should continue conversations on direct action and how we can stand in solidarity with others, especially protesters in other communities. So this is where they're kind of um, talking about working on the outside with the protesters as well and standing in solidarity, which is more of that kind of communist dog whistling. Um, there's things we, we can't do on our work hours, but taking leave means you are not on your work hours. Taking leave gives you the flexibility and the possibility to be involved in other activities that are going on. So this is kind of interesting because there's a lot of like emphasis here on kind of trying to skirt the line with the Hatch Act and them taking leave at strategic times to go be involved in, uh, I guess you could say, um, their their actions, their political actions and efforts. And so quite a few of the participants in the call had mentioned that some of them were on leave and that they, they had taken a strategic leave. So I guess anyone want to comment on that or should I keep moving on? Well, real quick, uh, there's a couple audience questions. Uh, people that are familiar with this, uh, government workers. One of the questions they asked were, did they participate in these meetings in their official capacities? And when you listen to the intro to this call, I think that question is going to be, need to be answered. So were these people representing themselves as also a part of X, Y, and Z office, even if they were quote unquote on leave? I think that's going to be some questions here that probably we should answer uh, before moving forward, because you have the video. 
I've not had a chance to, chance to, to, to review everything you put out yet because I know you've been scrambling to put this together for today. Um, and I'm driving now, so I can't look. <laughs> but uh, that, that's going to be one of the questions. No, I think that makes sense. And I, I've thought about that. And I know that they preference a lot of times they'll say, I'm from the Department of Labor or, you know, they'll, they'll introduce themselves as having those, those, you know, I guess, official titles and roles in government. Um, I think I do remember one of them said, I think it might have official capacity. But the problem, like the reason why this isn't going to hold entirely, as you will see, is as we get more into the content, um, what's being instructed is to use their official capacities inside the workplace to subvert the government, slow down policies. I mean, they're they specifically give a guide and tactics and actions, and they're they're basically instructing themselves and others to engage in using their positions of power inside the government to engage in political partisan activities as a as a unified so, uh, force, if that makes sense. Um, I would. I mean, I would say like to that, the only reason they're on their call, that call is because of their official capacity, because their official capacity has the ability to impact the election. So, I mean, this isn't just like a group of people they like got off Craigslist or like, you know, like rounded them up on the street because they needed bodies, right? These are strategically picked people in order to be on this call using their professional position within the government to subvert the voting process and the rights of the American people. I think that's a really good point, Jen. And the fact that they titled the call in the workshop as Federal Workers for Democracy as the name of their actual call. So, you know, I think they're kind of really trying to skirt a line there that could easily be pierced, especially when we start getting into some of this other stuff where they were, you know, encouraging people to use their official capacities to um, basically subvert the U.S. government and especially subvert. Office Secretary Austin. I do. Uh, let's get Sorry. into Maria Stefan. So now Maria Stefan is speaking. So she says, it is really great to be with you all in solidarity during this critical junction in our country. So there's the solidarity dog whistle again. I spent the past two decades focused on what Representative John Lewis referred to as good trouble, notably how people can use nonviolent action, which remember, guys, that word doesn't mean what you think it does. It's a, it's a definition for something else how people can use nonviolent action and people power to advance rights, freedoms, and democracy. I have studied as an academic and as a researcher dynamics of authoritarianism, how authoritarian authoritarians around the world have attempted to steal elections. And I've also focused on when and why movements for democracy have succeeded. At the same time, I have worked in the U.S. government I've worked in the State Department for over five years. And then I, in the article, I show a picture of her book that she wrote called Why Civil Resistance Work Works. And it says the cover of Why Civil Resistance Works, co-authored by Maria Stefan, features an illustration depicting a communist red fist hidden inside a hand doing a peace sign, which I think is really a perfect illustration for what 
this um, nonviolent action really is. It's, it's a communism hidden within a peace sign. She, she says, we are explicit. This is a quote for her book. We are explicit in conceptualizing civil resistance as a form of unconventional warfare, albeit one that employs different weapons and applies force differently. So this was a book that she really kind of took a lot of the materials from Jean Sharp when she wrote this book. Um, and then she actually speaks about Jean Sharp in the video. She says, I want to start with this quote by Jean Sharp, who's one of the pioneers in the field of nonviolent action, just to get a little bit on what power you have as individuals, as federal workers. So she's laying the groundwork here that, you know, this is power that you as federal workers have to be able to engage in nonviolent action, which nonviolent action is a is essentially unconventional warfare. That is what it is. They've redefined it. It is a name. It is not what we think of as nonviolent action. Nonviolent action is a is a name of something that they have created. So and Millie. Yeah, if go I ahead. May, if I may, real quick. Uh, so just so you guys know, Gene Sharp is kind of one of the originators of color revolutions. And uh, Norm Eisen and Michael McFall also put out books regarding Gene Sharp's work. It sounds like Maria Stefan did as well on uh, color revolutions. These are the same Michael McFall and Norm Eisen and many of these other color revolutionaries that did the Orange Revolution in, in 2004 in Ukraine, Euromaidan in 2014. And they are utilizing these same techniques that Maria Stefan is talking about, that Gene Sharp talks about in color revolution regime change in this country is what we believe. So. Absolutely. He, he very much is kind of the godfather of color revolutions and how to conduct revolutions in foreign countries. And so it's interesting that, you know, someone like Maria Stepan has a background in um, helping to, you know, overthrow countries, you know, it, foreign countries. And many of these people do. And yet, you know, here they are talking about Gene Sharp, who really was kind of a leading pioneer in nonviolent action, which it really what nonviolent action really means is it means using public perception, propaganda, you know, colors and symbols and subversive means covertly in order to undermine the authority of the government or of the the ruler or president of a country. Um, and it means to do it in a way that is not necessarily overtly violent because they find that that doesn't do well for public perception and that they can actually convince the entire nation of people to overthrow um, the supposed authoritarian or dictator themselves by engaging in nonviolent action. So um, she quotes Jean Sharp as saying, she says, so Jean Sharp said in politics of nonviolent action. I think I actually have it in here where you can hear her say it. By themselves, ruler cannot collect tax, rulers cannot t collect taxes, enforce repressive laws and regulations, keep trains running on time, prepare national budgets, direct traffic, manage ports, print money, repair roads, keep markets supplied with food, make steel, build rockets, train the police and the army, issue postage stamps, or even milk a cow, people provide these services to the ruler through a variety of organizations and institutions. If people would stop providing these skills, the ruler could not rule. So that's Maria Stefan reading off a quote from Jean Sharp. And here's her talking about Jean Sharp. 
I want to start with this uh, quote by uh, Gene Sharp, who's one of the pioneers in the field of nonviolent action, just to get a little bit at what power you all have um, as individuals and as federal workers. So Gene Sharp said um, in The Politics of Nonviolent Action, by themselves, rulers cannot collect taxes, enforce repressive laws and regulations, keep trains running on time, prepare national budgets, direct traffic, manage ports, print money, repair roads, keep markets supplied with food, make steel, build rockets, train the police and the army, issue postage stamps, or even milk a cow. People provide these services to the ruler through a variety of organizations and institutions. If people would stop providing these skills, the ruler could not rule. And just as a, an added insight on this, specifically focused on bureaucrats, um, President Harry S. Truman famously said, I thought I was the president, but when it comes to these bureaucrats, I can't do a damn thing. So the bottom line with this is that we all, as ordinary people um, and as federal workers, have power. Uh, next slide, Laura. So there's that one. I mean, what are your guys' thoughts on that? I mean, well, that oh. <laughs> she's she's saying, yeah, this is stuff that you can do as federal workers. Like, I don't know how much more <laughs> crystal clear it can possibly be, but uh, yeah. Um, well, her quoting Harry S. Truman with that quote, I think, you know, says it all that the actual people who run this country is the bureaucrats and the president is just a figurehead. And even though the people might want this figurehead, Donald Trump, we, the bureaucracy, don't want him. So we're going to do everything in our power to subvert the election to make sure that this idiot Trump don't get in. Right. And, and it, it, it really went beyond that, even in that this group of people, they they had been subverting Trump from the very beginning all throughout his administration. So, you know, I, I think her quoting that is just absolute uh, gold because she's pretty much exactly saying that, um, you know, this is what happened. We saw this happen when Trump got in office. I mean, right as soon as he got in office, there was a, a series of leaks there was a bunch of bureaucrats stopping his policies and, and making it so he couldn't get anything really accomplished. I mean, they were at war with him from the very beginning. And it just kind of goes to show there's a serious problem within the federal government. A serious problem, which Trump it, then later in the presidency tries to address. It's totally disgusting. I can't just just the, the quote she made, the book she's read, the, her reading list is so narrow mind i just cannot even begin it's so disgusting it is um so then i put a, a clip from uh how to start a revolution which was a documentary about gene sharp and it's just a little clip that really kind of explains um who gene sharp is um so gene sharp was the world's foremost expert on nonviolent revolution and has been described as the machiavelli of nonviolence this is a technique of combat. It is a substitute for war and other violence. We don't know quite how it spread, but it certainly did into 30-some languages in different parts of the world. 
on all continents except Antarctica. Says the lessons from Gene Sharp's books are used by revolutionaries all over the world. Colors and symbols. And it shows in the video examples of color revolutions all across the world. And uh, yeah, and then it kind of just, I, I mean, I don't probably need to play the rest of it because I think most of it's just uh, music. But if you were to watch that video, it really kind of shows you how these color revolutions use symbols and, and different colors and the way they write their signs and the way they do their protesting activities. And you'll start to recognize that a lot of these leftist protest groups that we've seen all over the media, they use those exact same tactics. They are taking it right directly out of Gene Sharp's uh, manual, basically. All right. So disrupting the pillars of support. Oh, one more thing, though, on that. that. That first part of that clip is actually Gene Sharp as a little bit younger speaking. And I think it's pretty uh, telling that he's literally saying that this is a, a basically unconventional warfare. It is warfare. It is a weapon. It, so when they're saying nonviolent action, just know that he's actually talking about um, a type of unconventional warfare, a weapon that can be used to topple governments. All right. Subverting the pillars of support. I'm just going to go ahead and play this one. I've put a lot of the um, I put a lot of the quotes in the article for people who want to just kind of read through instead of watching, but I'm going to play it for these uh, for the purposes of the space. So power is actually dispersed across society and concentrated in what we refer to as pillars of support. So these. So really quick, just to tell you what's on the screen, she's displaying an image of what looks like, you know, the, that old uh, Greek columns or pillars that would hold up a um, triangular looking roof. So she's showing different pillars with the government representing the roof, right? So the columns are the different pillars in government and the roof is the, is the government itself. And she's showing an illustration of cutting the pillars of support. These are organizations and institutions that provide a government or other power holder with the power, with the skills, the knowledge, the labor, the know-how that they need uh, to stay in power. And these pillars of support are made up of ordinary people like you and me who provide expertise, who provide uh, specific forms of labor, um, who provide buying power. So if people in these pillars of support withhold or deny their consent and cooperation, meaning they stop obeying, they stop cooperating, and they engage in protests, boycotts, strikes, a whole host of other uh, nonviolent tactics, that if masses of people engage in non-cooperation, no ruler can stay in power, um, even if they really want to, and even if they use a lot of repression. And ultimately, this is how civil resistance has removed even dictators from power in places like the Philippines, Serbia, Ukraine, uh, Sudan, other places around the world. And the other idea is that within these pillars of support, you can think of it as kind of a series of concentric rings. And, you know, at the center is kind of the power holder and people who are, you know, in the rings 
rings around the power holder have varying degrees of loyalty to the center. So, you know, those who are maybe closer to the center, and this uses the example of, you know, the, the military kind of uh, starting with generals and going out colonels, foot soldiers, but you think can think about this in terms of the bureaucracy as well, kind of going through the different hierarchy, that the people who are maybe closest to the center are more likely to obey, less likely to challenge authority. Um, but as you go out um, to those outer rings, people are going to have less loyalty um, to, to the center, to the power holder. And these people are really key allies. And ultimately, you know, the goal um, in, you know, in effective people power is to bring people over to your side, to get them to shift loyalties, to get them to move from the center to the outside. Um, and as we know, and as Maddie, um, you know, laid out so nicely, bureaucracy is a really powerful pillar. And, you know, federal workers have unparalleled familiarity with the bureaucratic process. They know how to speed things up. They know how to slow them down. They have access to critical information about policies that are being considered and implemented. They can participate in an internal decision making. They can provide or deny knowledge and expertise that those um, at the top of the bureaucratic uh, totem pole need. Okay. So yeah, that one, I think, you know, she really, just to show you uh, what the different pillars are labeled as in this illustration, she's got the different pillars labeled as bureaucracy, police, media, business, and then obviously the main one, generals, officers, soldiers, you know, the, the concentric rings inside of a, a pillar. Um, and so she's really talking about toppling a government by taking out the pillars that support that government. That's what she's describing. She's describing how to topple a government. I mean, there's nothing really, I don't know how anyone could really say otherwise. I mean, what are your guys' thoughts? How do these people have jobs? I mean, if somebody did that to me within my own company, I would trash them in two seconds flat. I mean, there, she's talking about to deny information, pertinent information on a topic to gain power in her own sphere, as opposed to supplying it to the person who's supposed to be making the decisions, our direct representatives. So, uh, uh, well, so, Magda, so Magda, I think that it's probably best, we'll take a pause here. If you feel that way and others are feeling that way, maybe, maybe that's an indication that I need to kind of paint a bigger picture here. I want you to imagine the average federal worker the average, I don't know, suburban white woman that's working within these offices or whatever, or a marginalized, quote unquote, marginalized group, and you've been fed nothing but propaganda. Social media has done nothing but censor and astroturf bad ideas, these ideas, and crush actual truth, real ideas, and actually top conversations about truth and liberty. These same people went through public education, most likely, and most likely ended up at one of our universities before they got their job within the government. This has been a very long process. And the language that they use specifically is this oppress, oppressor model and that Donald Trump's an authoritarian and Republicans in freedom and liberty. And so you have to do at all costs to save this country. And guess what? You that's been clocking in and out for 20 years <clears throat> and that's all you've done, nothing really else impactful. You now get swept up into something and believing that you're gonna be saving the country, right? So, like, it's really important to paint this picture. You only need a few radicals and a bunch of vulnerable people for this to be pulled off. And, and that's what they're doing. And it's a slow walk. It's 
the perversion of language. It's the the tactics used to to create the image in their heads and to make impact. We're empowering them. You know, you you watch these movies where they show like the mundane life of working in corporate America. In the government, it's three times as worse. And so, this is what this is essentially the product. This is what they're doing. So just kind of paint that picture so you understand. Not to mention the barrage of of censorship and, and astroturfing of all these ideas because of big tech over the years and colluding with legacy media saying the same things that Joy reads to the world and and, and and Minka and Joe in the morning and, and all this stuff. It, it's a perfect paint, painted picture of how susceptible these people were. So sorry to interrupt, Millie, but I just, to answer that question, I think that, that that needs to be painted here again and why we put so much effort into going after this stuff. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, there, there's a good amount of people that are just being kind of groomed into it. Um, but then there's obviously the more um, radicalized people that are trying to recruit people to their cause and to their uh, to their partisan political agenda. And very much it is very much a very progressive Green Party uh, Marxist agenda that they have. Um, I mean, that is really the underlying tone here throughout this is that th- th- this is something where you know, these groups are acting together to enact a very partisan political agenda. And I mean, at the same time, even if you're like an old person sitting at a, you know, bureaucracy feeling like you're, you're doing something to help stop a dictator or whatever, um, you know that what you're doing is wrong. Like they, what they are doing is wrong and they, and they know that they have to be careful to not be caught doing it. So they, they know it, but see what they'll justify to themselves is, is that, you know, it's for the greater good, right. Or it's to stop an authoritarian. So, so I think there is a good amount of um, conditioning that goes on with these people to make sure that they're, um, you know, that they're in the right mindset, I guess you could say for um, carrying out these subversive activities. So in this next part, um, they go, she goes over acts of commission and acts of omission. And this is really, I mean, this is, this is pretty bad stuff. And this, she's really referencing some of the tactics in the, um, activism guide for federal, um, you know, workers. Um, so she's referencing different tactics that federal workers and government employees can take from inside their positions of power in order to uh, basically subvert the government. Let's just, you know, let's just call it what it is. Let me, I had my thing on mute. Let me back it up. We talk about acts of commission and acts of omission. So acts of commission are things that you do that you either are not expected to do or that are contrary to, you know, what the opponent, in this case, the enemies of democracy, um, want you to do. Uh, So in this case, you know, an act of commission would be, you know, as federal workers asking very specific questions, exerting your voice in the workplace, joining with colleagues to make the case for why something may be illegal or unethical. Another uh, act of commission is the wearing of symbols, which seems like, you know, a small or a minor thing, but it's actually really powerful um, when lots of people are showing unity and solidarity by wearing symbols 
symbols. Um, symbols can be nonpartisan, they can be pro-democracy, and part of me thinks that symbols may be an important way for feds to show uh, support and solidarity around democracy and the integrity of our election or after uh, November 3rd. Another active commission is creating a paper trail. So producing a, a, a very clearly written account of the problem in question and the actions um, that are taken to address it. And this is really, I think, in this moment uh, where there may be uncertainty, conflicting messaging, um, potentially illegal orders um, for civil servants, federal workers to engage in meticulous documentation um, to challenge the policies or the directives that they deem unethical or unconstitutional, particularly when the orders are given verbally uh, rather than in written form. And another active commission, albeit highly um, you know, risky, and there are a number of um, uh, great downsides, is leaking. So leaking information about pending or actual policies with journalists, with activists, influential people on the outside. Um, but this you know, really uh, should be used very judiciously only on truly significant matters um, because most disclosures outside of formal internal whistleblowing are at minimum a violation of contractual duty and they may put leakers um, at significant legal risk. Um, and of course, if information is classified, employees can be fired or criminally prosecuted, as Sarah uh, may talk a little bit about. So, so I, I saw your hands shoot up there, Aaron. So I wanted to I wanted to let you chime in for a second here before we, we keep going on some of these acts of commission. Yeah, no, there's actually an example that we had prior to the 2022 midterm election. And what she says, is it needs to be big, it needs to be impactful, but it needs to be sparse. Uh, if you guys remember, one of the clerks, somebody leaked at SCOTUS that they were going to overturn Roe v. Wade before the 2022 midterms, if you don't, if you don't remember that. And what did that do to those 2022 midterms? Heck, what are they doing right now with it? Right. So they can't they, they're not able to argue anything about their policies. But the one thing they can say is women's reproductive rights, women's health, women's health. And they pounded that and they pounded that and they used abortion and, and the perversion of what Roe v. Wade actually was. Uh, and that was a strategic leak. So that's an example in recent time of, of how, exactly how this works. Oh, yeah. And they actually give examples in the Zoom call of using the tactics and times that it has worked. So they actually give very specific uh, examples that they have firsthand knowledge of. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is something that, you know, <laughs> they're saying it themselves. I'm not having to say it. They're saying it themselves. They're the ones saying that, you know, these are acts that they can take regarding, you know, subverting the government, which is leaking documents. And then the next one, um, be it create parallel structures or self-organizing units, which she's going to get to. But that one's pretty, you know, pretty bad in itself as well, like because they're basically creating little conspiratorial networks inside of the government. So another act of um, uh, of commission is creating parallel structures or self-organizing units. So organizing in the office place, in the workplace. This is particularly important um, in the event of abuses of power, unethical activity, to be able to self-organize, um, make decisions without obeying or legitimizing certain decisions that are made. 
So in terms of acts of omission, thing, meaning things that you either, that you don't do, that you're expected to do, um, or that you're being asked to do, um, first is, you know, rejecting loyalty oaths, um, you know, being called upon to swear a, a loyalty oath, um, you know, around a, a candidate, an individual, um, particularly when the outcome of the election is still um, in doubt, um, uh, very important thing, and to foster frank internal debate and transparency with outside stakeholders whenever possible. Um, another act of omission is going slow or slow down. So basically people, bureaucrats, federal workers performing their duties um, at a foot dragging pace, which is less likely to attract attention than an overt strike um, and has been used in a number of different uh, cases. And then, you know, another a higher risk um, uh, effort would be a labor strike or a walkout um, would likely be illegal, but it's kind of um, a high risk, high impact, a nonviolent action that federal workers can take um, if they deem it necessary. So, Okay. So, so there you have it. And these are things that you're going to want to pay very close attention to these acts of commission and acts of omission, because you know, further on in the Zoom call, they they specifically use those hot button words and they describe those very things that has been done previously and that have been effective, right? So they're talking about the tactics they're teaching and then they'll say, here's an example of when that worked well. And, they'll, and then they'll talk about creating a paper trail, right? That's a hot button one or doing leaks, right? Or going slow or gumming up the gears, gumming up the bureaucratic process. Um, so these are all really key terms that you should pay close attention to. So obviously the first one, I'll just to go over them because this is so important. I cannot kind of re, you know, like I can't, you know, get it out there enough for everyone. So ask questions, federal workers asking very specific questions, exerting your voice in the workplace and you know, they, they kind of use that tactic to ask questions, to kind of make things, to challenge things, to kind of undermine other efforts or policies and kind of make their voices heard. Wearing symbols. So the, wearing symbols is a way for them to show unity and solidarity in the workplace. So they might wear symbols that are technically they could try to skirt the line and get away with saying that the symbols that are wearing are nonpartisan when in actuality they are partisan. And um, the lawyer, the U.S. Department of Labor lawyer, Sarah Sturette, later on gives a prime example of this in the video where she shows, she actually stands up and, and tilts her camera down and shows her Black Lives Matter shirt that she's wearing. And um, basically, uh, I'll read this. Sarah shows how Black Lives Matter attire is considered a safe, nonpartisan symbol to wear to show unity unity in the workplace. Black Lives Matter is obviously, most of you guys know, it's almost exclusively a left-wing organization that campaigns for democratic political policies. But because uh, it's most likely a 501c3 and it's claiming to be nonpartisan and because they, the leftists say it is nonpartisan, therefore, um, you know, they, they think that it would be safe to wear that as a symbol of unity and solidarity in the workplace as federal workers. Um, so feds for BLM, basically. <laughs> uh, so she says, 
she's, she says it like this. She says, I'm wearing a shirt that I think is acceptable under the Hatch Act. Vote like Black Lives Matter. I would wear something like this and think you'd be okay wearing that on the job. So then creating a paper trail. So that's a really key one that you hear over and over again, creating a paper trail, meaning if that they could then try to use it against someone in the future, right? Let's say if the, the pendulum swings of power, a new administration comes in, that's something they could utilize. Leaking. So obviously we went over that one um, and they, they talk about leaking it to journalists, leaking it to the outside. Um, leaking information about pending and actual policies. I don't think anyone's going to forget that one. <laughs> um, so here's another clip where further down the line in the video, in the breakout rooms, an individual who used the alias Comrade Loke, who I, I'm not 100% positive on his identity, but he's one of the possible matches. Um, he was a little bit harder to identify, even though he had a really good video. It's just... I, it was harder to, he has a lower profile on the internet. Um, so that's something I could task you guys to also help with and help confirm his identity on the internet sleuths of the, of the Twitter world right now or X world. All right. So, um, I'll go ahead and play this clip really quick for you. Yeah. I, I just recommend everyone who works in the federal government. If you read the mainstream press, like who is covering your agency? who is working for ProPublica, who is working for Politico. Um, they all have signal accounts. Text them, leak everything you can, save your emails, record. I record these meetings, I send it over. I, and I can't believe I'm showing my face here, but I've been doing this for months. And if you do have to write something, write something with really crappy, you know, just unintelligible, ungrammatical language to just make them look terrible. And it will look like something that comes from this administration anyway, but. Um, and to your first point, um, I know we talked a little bit about whistleblower protections. Um, do you have any sense of like what is and isn't um, covered when you're kind of like leaking things to a place like ProPublica over Signal or anything like that? I, I, I mean, again, and I sort of prefaced it, I was like, I don't anticipate keeping my job for too long. So uh, I'm, I'm just taking a risk and I just believe in it and I don't really care about the job anymore, which is terrible because I don't know what I'm going to do without it. But I just figure I'll get another job. Yeah, and I think that's definitely an important thing to think about, like your own risk level. Um, and if you're in a place where you're like, so be it, um, and taking that level of risk is... The other thing, not everyone's in that position like me where I feel confident about like going back on the hunt for a job. You may have a colleague though, who has a higher risk threshold than you do. Um, so there's a way that you can pass on that information and that they're willing to be the front for it. Um, again, the journalists I've dealt with have been super ethical in ways to shield me, seeming okay. to be the source of the leaks. So just get to find out who those, and most most respectable journalists do that. They try and shield their sources because that's their that's their bread and butter. That they give them the story, so they don't want to throw you under the bus or screw you. Wow. Yeah. So. 
There you have it. And that's from, you know, he's using the alias of Comrade Loke, mind you. Okay. So, I mean, it, it, it speaks for itself. Um, but later on in the calls, he also talks about how he was, wor- he worked directly with the transition teams. Um, the He worked with the, I guess, Trump's transition team and that he was supposed to also be working with the transition team of the winner of the next election, which he then there's another really uh, crazy conversation that that spirals out of that one. Um, So the next one, obviously, uh, create parallel structures, self-organizing units. Um, Like I was saying earlier, it's to create um, allies to conspire with essentially and have your back in the workplace um, and then next it's acts of omission, right? Which is more of the, uh, you know, I guess things that are more out in the open acts of omission, meaning things that you don't do that you're expected to do. Okay. So this means basically you're expected to do these things, but you just don't do them. So you're withholding, um, your skills and your, what you would be supposed to be offering to the government. You're withholding that. So using um, the go slow tactics and slowing things down, gumming up the gears. And then obviously they talk about a strike or a walkout. Um, This is something they talk about multiple times. So pay attention to that as well, which it's completely illegal, mind you. And it can, um, if you were to actually participate in a strike in the government outright, um, it could, you could be banned from working in federal office after that as a government employee. Um, it's not something that's supposed to happen. The reason they have um, the reason they have these uh, laws in place is because they, you know, our federal government does not need to be taken over by unions. Okay, that would be a really bad nightmare situation. Which unfortunately, there are a lot of union leaders also in this call participating, and they're working very closely with the unions um, throughout this call as well. Um, so I see Patrick has his hand up, and then we'll go to this next video. Go ahead, Patrick. Hey, Millie. Great. I mean, this is I, – I just had one thought. As, as I listened to the language, I thought, this is my anti-money laundering training, but in reverse. Like everything from, you know, various types of – and compliance training, you know, your customer, when we would go through these professional conduct – these words, omission, commission, you know, I asked, um, I wanted to ask, did anybody get up and walk out at the beginning or leave the Zoom call when they started talking about how using signal or, you know, this taking, essentially doing things that are subversive or that are, that if you know that you're not supposed to talk about it, like Fight Club, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. And so I kind of, I like our instruction would be to get up and walk out of that meeting and then report it to compliance. Like literally that's what we would be trained to do. And all these words, commission, omission, slow walking, all these things are clear violations of your employment agreement generally, handbook, et cetera. It just, it blows my mind that if nobody got up and left the Zoom call, I mean, that tells you something right there. Oh yeah, and many of the people on the call have security clearances too, so they would be they would be 
obligated to not only, like you're saying, walk out of the call, but they would have to then report it and report that they had associated with these people. And obviously we know that none of that's happening. None of that's occurring. This is all secretive and clandestine in nature. And so that's why this is such a huge story because we actually caught these people in the act on camera plotting and subverting plotting and conspiring to subvert the United States government. I mean, this is this this is why I've been literally like pulling out my hair, like shouting from the rooftops about this for so long because this is something that our government, our you know, Congress needs to investigate this. Yeah. Because why is this being allowed to happen inside of our government? What is going on? It's a, it seems to be a systemic problem when you when you actually hear them talking about how many people they actually have. They keep referencing three million people, but I don't know if that's that they're just saying that's how many uh, people are in the workforce, or if that's some the the network of that they have but they keep referencing that that there's three million federal workers that they're you know they, they keep saying it as though it's their their power trip but well, i don't know how vast their network goes but what we do know is that many of the people on this call were facilitators so there were over 19 facilitators on this call which the facilitators then go set up their own meetings with their other clusters if that makes sense. Oh, it did. Well, Millie, aren't, aren't federal workers unionized? Some are actually not allowed to be unionized. So I guess it they specifically talk about how that depends. And it, it depends on what your role is in government. Some people working for agencies or specific you know, government positions are not allowed to be unionized. I think the, the security, like DHS agencies are probably, except for... CSA are exempted, but the, the other thing, and this gets to what kind of trash, I think we have to look at this kind of like in that, that prism of if you were, how, you know, this is the way they'd ask the question. How many Germans in 1947 would have wished they could have gone back and stopped Hitler? How many, what wouldn't you do to stop Hitler? And that's, that's how you can rationalize anything. I mean, and that, that's, I think that's the, the, the hardest part of what we're, you know, you can, you can literally rationalize anything if you think that you're gonna stop a, the, the next Holocaust or whatever. And yet in so doing, create a dictatorship like the one that, you know, exists today <laughs> or is starting. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about that is they actually do share, which I'm going to have to later update this article and include. I forgot to put it in. They actually do share um, in the chat the CIA manual on sabotage. And if you were to read through that, the CIA's uh, declassified manual on sabotage, um, it actually talks about like basically how to brainwash the how to brainwash the people that you're having do these things into thinking that they're morally justified in doing so. And, and like basically calling somebody an authoritarian, a dictator or something like that, that would be kind of making it so that that person can rationalize because the person's going to be have, having to continually rationalize in their mind why they're doing what they're doing. Is it really worth the risk? You know, so, um, you know, I think that all kind of goes hand in hand, but yeah, I definitely think that, you know, um, it really kind of points 
in an alarming way that they were even sharing that um, CIA manual on sabotage, which, you know, that's supposed to be the CIA spotting sabotage. But they're like, no, let's use this as a, you know, something to reference as literature when we're doing our um, our subversive activities. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Um, all right. So I'll go into this next video, which is a combination of tactics and this is where you're going to pay real close attention to those hot button words like slow down the gears, leak, paper trail. Uh, you know, pay attention to those words because that's them giving examples of um, these tactics in use. To refuse the quote, let the trains run on time for those who aren't able to strike. What would that look like in practical terms? What does it look like in practical terms to put you know, uh, to slow the gears down in some ways or another. At, at, at the Department of Labor, it, it takes the form of um, several rounds of the cost-benefit analysis for a new regulation. And when um, when the numbers were, when people were cheating on the numbers, uh, a copy of that draft got leaked uh, to the Data Labor Report, and it got published, and it got sent to a congressperson. And the Office of Inspector General opened an investigation on who was cheating on the numbers. Um, so again, that's sort of a combination of tactics. It's 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 making really the paper trail. It's making sure that that document got out to someone who could make use of it, and then Congress getting the Office of Inspector General involved. It's it was really a way to stop that thing just in its tracks, and it, it worked really well. But it was a coordinated effort by a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And Maria, do you want to add to this? Yeah, no, and you know the thing about strikes, I, I completely agree with where Sarah was coming from. That strike is um, kind of the worst option. Um, I laid it out as an option just because it's you know it's there, it's available. If kind of your conscience is um, you know um, past the point of no return, if you will. Um, but I, you know, there are definitely a lot of different go slow tactics, and I think. You know, um, this is also an area where, um, you know, folks on the outside, so private citizens, those um, in groups on the outside, being able to show uh, solidarity with federal workers and, and um, you know, civil servants is particularly important during this moment, um, just to tell them, like, you've got, we've got your back on the outside, do the right thing, be ethical, uh, serve well. And I think we don't often think about that in the protest category, but like, incentivizing um, folks doing the right thing um, and having that be loud and clear is, you know, just um, another another option. Yeah, um, I'll add on to that um, some information that, frankly, I've learned from other people who are attending this call um, that, you know, there's obviously a history of um, air traffic controllers um, striking in the past and getting fired for that under the Reagan administration. Um, and I think that has kind of held through as um, not just an actual barrier to striking, but also um, makes federal employees deeply fearful of um, action they can take. Um, but I also in the most recent government shutdown, I think there was a really strong relationship between the air traffic controllers, even though they did not strike at any point, um, the issues that they posed to the unions in the airline industry that ended up playing a huge role in helping get the government back open. Um, so I think having those partnerships with other um, organizations, powerful unions in the private sector that um, can have our backs and vice versa will be really important. Great. 
Thank you so much for everyone, um, uh, for the, our three speakers and for folks asking uh, really wonderful uh, questions to extrapolate on. Um, right in the note, somebody said, Fed flu struck many TSA and air controllers threatening to shut down airports. That is a particular uh, thing that we can all catch this winter. <laughs> okay, so yeah. I, I hope you guys were paying attention and picking up the different, you know, hot button terms that they were using there, you know, slowing the gears down, leaking paper trials, striking, how, you know, different coordinated efforts that they were, you know, aware of or knew of from people either that were in the call or they themselves personally um, had firsthand knowledge of that basically they uh, were giving real examples of how these tactics can be utilized and have a successful end result. Now, one thing I think that's important to kind of point out as well is they, at the end, she talks about, oh, we could all like catch the Fed flu, right? And that that was a tactic that they use. Now, I find that one interesting because they don't actually list that as one of the tactics in the main PowerPoint, but in their um, their guide that they distribute, they actually do specifically um, talk about using uh, strategic sick leave or sick sick days. Um, they call them sick outs to uh, be able to, in a way, kind of protest or uh, slow things down. Um, so anyone want to comment on that last video? What are your guys' thoughts on that? So you're saying a COVID outbreak in the office might no, no. be a great way to slow things down. <laughs> Oh, oh, well, yeah, they would strategically lie and say they're sick so that they could then take a sick leave day to slow something down or to, um, you know, essentially strike or protest something. I was just wondering if the Fed flu, because at the time of this, COVID was still very much in swing. And I remember even in my company, like how people really milked COVID because um, we were all systemic being in banking. So our office kind of reopened early. And I'll just tell you, there were a lot of COVID out outbreaks where everybody was on calls. They sounded fine to me. So. All yeah. right. So, yeah, let's get back to the content. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get back. All right. So um, inside, outside strategy. Um, let's go ahead and talk about that. So this is where Maria Stefan kind of gives a uh, perspective on the inside outside strategy and what that means. And it basically, you know, kind of means uh, the inside federal workers working together and utilizing the support from the outside civil society organizations and left-wing protest groups. Being able to think about what you can do um, as federal workers and seeing the relationship between those actions and what is happening outside the federal workplace. So really the importance of self-organizing with colleagues from within the same bureau and across government agencies, um, which can help build trust and confidence as federal workers are having to navigate a really difficult terrain together. Uh, connecting with civic groups and organizations on the outside and 
having Franken honest conversations with them. And when you think about it, the legal support and advocacy work of civil society organizations could come in really in handy, um, you know, if and when you have to take certain actions on the inside. Um, and then, you know, contributing as private citizens, knowledge, skills, expertise to civic groups, organizations um, that would benefit from them tremendously. And just remaining in communication with those groups that, um, you know, uh, in a grassroots way or organizing, preparing people um, in the event that there is a stolen election. Learn what. So they also note um, in here in their document, it says um, on their screen, it says communicate with civic and grassroots groups and initiatives focused on democracy defense. And they specifically name choose democracy, hold the line, protect the results and shut down D.C., as those organizations that they want them to specifically communicate with um, about these activities they're doing. All right. Um, now let's go to, which mind you, um, the organizers for Shutdown DC are hosting the call. So that makes sense. And the other thing is that, I mean, just to kind of give you guys a perspective of how, uh, how, how did the Sunrise investigation result in us getting basically into uh, the middle of shutdown DC and then all these other organizations and the hold the line and all their internal uh, documents and, and whatever. Um, it's because of the way their structures are organized. And if you go up far enough, you get connected in to their different um, hubs and the way they all work together is very um, connected. It's very interconnected. I guess that would be kind of the best way to, to talk about it. All right. So Sarah Sturette, now Sarah Sturette comes in. She's the Department of Labor attorney. Um, and this is where she kind of uh, goes in and, and gives the do's and don'ts. Um, so she says, I have to say, as an attorney in the federal government, I'm finding the chat suggestions very interesting. And I just don't want to, I do want to remind people that, it, that um, we lose our status as federal employees if we strike. But as my sister Sarah Harper pointed out, we could do an informational picket at lunchtime. So there are things that you can do that will get you visibility if you do them carefully and you do them at lunchtime. You probably won't get fired. So that would be my sort of initial thing is probably don't get fired like right away unless you're ready to quit your job. If you're ready to quit your job, you know, that's a whole other thing. Um, let me see. I didn't really put as much on. Uh, I don't have a video here on here, but it says do's and don'ts. Um, so she's basically saying that she's not giving legal advice. Do not say Sarah told me to do this. Um, so it was okay. All right. I will deny I ever said it. So just be aware. Those of you who know me already, you should take, you should always get legal advice if you're going to take any risky action and you can probably talk to a union or a whistleblower agency or a private lawyer, get some ideas, maybe from Nadine or Laura, Laura, just run it by someone before you do it. That's going to, uh, that's going to get you fired. Oh, just run it by somebody before you do anything that's going to get you fired. At least at this point in time, I'm feeling very vulnerable as a federal worker. So I just really don't want to get us all fired like the first day. Um, and then she goes into here about how if you're on your lunch hour, that that might be the appropriate time to uh, basically use your cell phone and contact a whistleblower or public interest group. 
So she really kind of emphasizes next that you really need to do it on your lunch hour. Um, it's pretty wordy. It's pretty long, some of her quotes. But if you want to read the article, you can do it. I just don't want to read through it all because we are a little bit, um, you know, we're, we're already two hours into this thing. It's crazy. Um, so she talks again about like in terms of the go slow approach. Um, in my experience, when we had the last transition in the last three months after the election was over and before the new president took office, there was an enormous amount of work that was done on an incredibly fast pace in my agency to try and get things out, to get regulations out, to get um, guidance documents out, to finish policies, to try and put things in stones so that the new administration could not change them back. And that's an area where in the legal department where I worked, sometimes corners were cut which is just really, really bad. And sometimes we got sued over those things. And very often those actions got overturned. So it's perfectly okay to say to your boss, I think this needs more work. I think this needs some more thought, you know, drafting memos, circulating questions, you know, raising issues. Because it, even if some terrible things happen in the next three months, there may be new administration and a new Congress that may try to reverse some of these actions. So if we do have a good paper trail, it really helps. Um, and then she kind of later on goes in about um, like being careful. She says, if you're being monitored and your supervisor is harassing you, you just need to be really, really careful because if they want to try to get rid of you, they can say if you falsified your leave or if you did something you weren't supposed to do and you have to be really careful. Okay. And so she's kind of coming in as like a word of caution. You need to be more covert with the way you're you're um, implementing the tactics, so to speak. And then it goes. They go into a discussion about Trump's Schedule F executive order. So just a breakdown of what that is, really quick. Schedule F stems from a Trump executive order, no longer in effect, which they've killed it now. Obviously, once Biden got in, that was the first thing Biden did. First thing his administration did when he got in was to kill Trump's Schedule F executive order, in which the order basically in which tens of thousands of civil servants who serve in roles deemed to have some influence over policy would be reassigned to as Schedule F employees. These employees would lose their employment and union protections upon reassignment, making them functionally at will employees and therefore far easier to fire. Further, Schedule F would require loyalty to the president. And that's something they were really worried about. They did. They were worried about being fired because they could easily be, you know, shown to be not being loyal to the president or, you know, they could somebody could, um, you know, come at them for maybe things they've said or done publicly. I don't know. Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, no, I just wanted to give an update to the room. This is going to be off topic, but uh, obviously it's primary night and apparently everybody wants to talk about the same thing over and over again. So to learn, but uh, Donald Trump has been projected to win the New Hampshire primary. That is all. All right. Perfect. Yeah. Um, you know, the primary night, it, it's it's just a big clown show. We already know that Trump is going to be, you know, the winner. I mean, it's it's the whole thing's a joke. They, you know, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley need to just drop out already. It's a waste of time and money. But anyway, moving forward. Um, so these are their responses to 
talking about Trump's Schedule F executive order and their takes on it. it. So Sarah Sturette says, it's terrible, it's horrible in every way, but we don't really know how broad the impact is going to be. It's going to take some time to figure out how broadly they're going to try to attack us. We just don't know yet. So Maddie Salzman says, the executive order calls for a list of recommended positions for becoming Schedule F employees to be delivered to OMB by January 19th, and it's just a preliminary list. So my general thought is it is relevant if the president remains the official president on January 20th. I think in a world where that isn't happening, I don't think it's relevant. Okay, so then... Yeah, so they're basically like, <laughs> we they really did not want that. Um, that so that might be partly a motivating factor for uh, why they, the feds were wanting to get rid of Trump so much is because there's been a long going war between Trump and the the D.C. swamp federal bureaucrats in Washington in, in Washington D.C. ever since his administration started. So civil disobedience on my own time. Um, this is where. There's kind of a question and answers where they kind of go back and forth over um, what can they do uh, as far as engaging in civil disobedience. Um, so basically, so there's a question about regard, regarding civil disobedience and getting peacefully arrested on my own time. Is this a danger to my job? Sarah Sturette says, yes, you can be fired if you're arrested and you're convicted of a crime. For example, if you blockade a federal building, that's a federal crime. You can be fired for committing such a crime. You know, that is certainly possible. It's not a guaranteed. And you they can search your desk and search your computer and you can be subject to some serious harassment. And then um, Nadine also kind of gives her take on it. She says, I'll jump in as a federal employee who did risk arrest, although at that point I was a contractor. I never had a high level security clearance, but I passed my low level security clearance many times. And I had been at that point an activist for 30 plus years with a number of arrests that I couldn't actually calculate. I don't know that I could have gotten a job in the DOD, but that's definitely not a wide, it's very, very particular, right? To the job that you're applying for and the agency that you're working in and the kind of type of arrest that you take, I would really recommend staying away from felony charges, for example, but whether or not you do a misdemeanor or an infraction on federal property or on public property really doesn't affect most jobs. Okay, so this one I don't have to read, which I'm happy about, which mind you guys, the full videos in this, it's just, um, it's a two hour long video and there's quite a bit of just not like them just talking about like you know, their favorite food and other things that, you know, I didn't think that you guys would have to want to sit through. But if you do want to, the full two hour video is there in the article and you can watch it yourself and take notes and really kind of understand what's going on. And Or if you're somebody who's going to be an internet sleuth, if you want to, you know, get more screenshots of people's faces that we have yet to have identified, that's something to do with that as well. All right. So this one, what, what if Trump wins? If you're not sure you have colleagues that you trust to talk to, um, that's one of the reasons of having this conversation. We want to start having spaces for people to connect. And so maybe you'll meet somebody through this space that works at your agency that maybe has more information or talk to somebody at a different agency who maybe has awareness of what it's like where you are. So um, we want to help facilitate conversation, even if you're not sure who to turn to at work. Yeah. 
That's great. So I'm going to go back to another uh, question I saw. I have a job that includes offering informed judgment on different matters and mentioning that there's a possible change of administration and we need to consider that possibility would be considered a normal part of my job. I can see some political appointees reacting badly to that, but it's not against the rules if it's framed in that context. Does anybody want to comment? There was also a comment about how uh, people might stay away from that um, because political appointees would react badly. But uh, is there any is there anything illegal about it? Is there a problem with that? Uh, any comments? I don't think it's illegal. You're just you're just raising a policy question. I mean, what, one of the things that we deal with all the time is if we do this, will we get sued? Yeah. You know, who will sue us and what will be the arguments that they make? So we, we have to try to make sure what we do is not arbitrary and capricious. Um, and so if we fail to consider all the aspects of a problem, it's arbitrary and capricious. You know, so that's part of the job is just sort of calculate what's going on and react, you know, offer options anyway to react to it. Great. Excellent. Um, so there's a bigger question, and uh, maybe we want to talk about that in the in relation to the topic of the night of world federal workers. About I understand the emphasis on preparing for a scenario where Trump refuses to accept a defeat, but I'm honestly more afraid of him just outright winning. How do we prepare for that? Anybody? Uh, any one of our uh, panelists, Maria, Maddie, Sarah, want to take this? I'm putting my head in the sand on that one. I refuse to accept the possibility. <laughs> okay. So that's where they're basically like, you know, I refuse to accept the possibility that Trump's going to win or that he's, you know, you know, they, they don't even want to accept that, which is interesting because because throughout this video, they're complaining, thinking, oh, Trump's not going to accept election results. But here they are saying they're not going to accept the possibility of Trump winning and being president. All right. So next is calling it a coup. So here's where they start really kind of building on this narrative around calling it a coup, calling it a coup. And this is again, so that when Trump tries to contest the election, which they accurately predict is going to be wrought with election irregularities, um, that they are then going to call that a coup. So here we go. I think making sure that we're naming what is happening as a coup in language um, and communications with coworkers will be really important. Yeah. Um, totally agreed. In the about BC conversations that I've been having, and that's not on the federal side, we um, also are often saying, like, call it a coup. It's a coup. Don't let anyone tell you it's not. Um, because the more you normalize that language, the more like, it becomes apparent. And it's like most centrist folks in, in the government might start actually accepting that. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I work on a project where I'm interacting on a daily basis with our politicals um, and starting to call into question if we're in the midst of a coup should we even be listening to our politicals because they are not here legitimately anymore. So just to pause there for a second. So when she's talking about we should, should we calling into question, should we even be listening to our politicals because they're not here legitimately anymore? She's talking about not listening to the Trump administration. That's what she's talking about. She's talking about, you know, kind of pre preparing that mindset for, 
they're not legitimate anymore. We're not going to listen to them. That's a great question to be asking. That said, uh, I know that, you know, we, if, if there's a Biden win next week, um, there's going to be a transition team coming in. And uh, I think I'm going to be spending a lot of time working with them because I know, um, and I was around during the last transition, like we spent a lot of time preparing those briefing books and we are not doing that this time. That is not a priority. And so a lot of that work is going to have to be done sometime. I mean, the last time we spent about six months preparing a big fat briefing book, um, that's going to all have to start. All that work's going to probably happen next week. Not that there was that much achieved policy wise, um, these last four years, but I don't know if it's naive to say, but I'm going to kind of like look like I'm going to have to shut out the current political appointees and go to the transition team and be like, this is, you know, I'm looking ahead to the future. This is, this is our work. So, you know, I hate to think that they're going to be our saviors or something, but. Um, Can I ask another nitty gritty question related to that? So say you have two narratives happening simultaneously. There's the existing Trump appointees saying there is no transition team because there's no transition. It's a continuation. Then you have Trump's or Biden's side saying, um, I won and my team is coming to the doors. Like what are, what are the responsibilities of the various people in your agency to issue a visitor badge and physically let someone into the building and give them IT access and set up the meeting. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say like, yes, they do need computers and stuff, but like right now there are no doors. Like how do you you get them the zoom logins or how do you start, you know, we can make those determinations ourselves. We, you know, they say you're going to account and we're going to start and we're like, I don't know. We're like the, Lithuanian government in exile or something we're gonna and that we're gonna start working with them yeah and I think it's almost like definitely a risk factor but if, if there's a contested election and it's fairly clear to us who won um we we get to choose who the leader is um and I don't know what risk that puts on you and and I'm not a Ted again so I don't want to like in a weird situation but like I think that is a point where you and your team and your supervisors and those um non-appointee like uh uh I'm sorry what's the the term uh career career staff can actually decide like well according to our understanding Biden won and therefore we are listening to his appointees and his transition team um yeah so this is pretty big right here because this is them talking about, you know, with people who alleged to work with the transition teams and work with the, you know, Trump's political appointees talking about, you know, having pre-plans, I guess, pre-planning to basically accept to work with Biden's transition team and refuse to work with Trump's team. Right. So this is where they're kind of like, you know, we get to pick who the leader is. I mean, you you heard her say it. She says um, we get to pick who the leader is if it's in question. Right. And and then they also like one of the things that Comrade Loke says, which is pretty mind blowing. If you know anything about 
uh, the Lithuanian government in exile. I mean, he literally says, I don't know. We're like a Lithuanian government in exile or something. So um, we're just going to start working with the Biden administration. Well, not only that, Millie, right? You heard that one guy being really snotty about it. He's like, well, I mean, it's not like we allowed much of policy to get done anyway in the last four years. So, And they're explaining why. They're explaining what they were doing. How many people on this call did you hear? Oh, yeah, I've been an activist for 30 years and blah, 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 blah. I've been doing this for some time. And here's, here's how to kind of get around it. Like, they're already explaining to you not only what they're going to do, but what they've been doing and what they've been doing for some time. Right, exactly. They've been doing this for quite a while. This is, you know, it's something that they've been actively doing to subvert Trump throughout his presidency. And now they're talking specifically about what do we do if there's a contested election? Do we just choose to start working with Biden's uh, transition team, right? And and it shut out Trump's appointees and Trump's uh, people, right? So that's kind of what they're really talking about. I, I don't know. I mean, they are talking about about it pretty out in the open, but I think they're still kind of uh, being a little bit more delicate with the wording. Like they're not saying, all right, you guys, here's the plan. But they're saying it conversationally. I guess they're saying the plan conversationally, if that makes sense. I, I think that's kind of fair to, to put it that way. Um, all right. So moving forward, it then goes into I, I've got another section here about poll workers. So throughout the call, there was quite a big, uh, quite a few different times where they were um, encouraging federal employees and people on the call to volunteer to work at the polls. Um, So uh, Sarah Sturette says, OPM has set out a memo saying that they encourage all federal employees to help out at the polls in a nonpartisan capacity. And they're offering eight hours of administrative leave to anyone who wants to do that. Clearly, if you're going to do it in a partisan capacity, you need to take annual leave. Um, and here's another one from Sarah. And also to the person who said they're a poll worker, are we allowed to get paid as poll workers? Do we have to report that uh, income to our employers? Um, she says, we don't give tax advice, but if you're getting paid by the federal government on administrative leave, you can't, you can't also accept payment as a poll worker. It's one or the other. And then Sarah Sturette says, I've been doing a lot of voter protection, election protection, hotline, volunteer activity in the last month or so. And if I'm doing it for a nonpartisan civil rights group like the Lawyers Committee, then I can get leave to do it and I can still get paid. I can do it as a pro bono activity for the federal government. But if I'm working for the Biden campaign doing the exact same thing, I cannot because that is partisan, partisan political activity. So that's really what the Hatch Act does is it sets up a very bright line between partisan political activity, which you cannot do in the workplace or on federal property during duty hours, but you can do it on your own time. So if you're on annual leave, for example, so she's kind of laying out like how to go, how to be able to go volunteer for voter protection and being a poll worker for federal workers. Um, and then they go into their breakout, breakout rooms. But before they do that, they give out, they give three scenarios for the people to discuss inside the breakout room. And the three scenarios are one, it said, well, it says all scenarios assume that in the week after the election, either there is no clear winner or that Trump is denying that he lost. 
I mean, how convenient is that, right? <laughs> One, your leadership is asking staff to draft false official statements, talking points, communiques, etc., for a foreign domestic audience saying that Trump won, claiming that protests are violent and illegitimate, uncounted mail-in ballots are fraudulent, and that the Democrats are staging a coup. Two, leadership in your department agency is using the new EO, executive order, to initiate a purge of disloyal civil servants. You're being asked to report on the loyalty of your colleagues and to demonstrate your own loyalty by signing an oath of loyalty to President Trump and to certify that you will not participate in anti-Trump activities even. Three, political appointees are hastily cementing their legacy by pushing through bad policy, defunding projects they don't like, and funding their special interests. You suspect some of this activity is corrupt or in violation of federal regulations. So those were the three scenarios that they go over in their breakout groups. I do find it pretty darn convenient that the uh, only strategies are, you know, pertaining to that either there's no clear winner or Trump is denying that he lost find that interesting. Um, all right. So next, uh, facilitator, Rachel Golden, Goldstein. Um, she says, my name is Rachel. As I've mentioned, I'm not an agency. I'm not a fed. So this is kind of like a transcript of their back and forth inside of their, uh, breakout session where they kind of go over who they are. Um, so I work in renewable energy. I'm pretty involved in coordinating some work with shutdown DC and a couple other ways to defend democracy after the election. And then in, here comes Joel Richardson. My name is Joel. I'm not part of the executive branch. I am one of the quasi government things that reports directly to Congress. So in some aspects, my job is maybe a little safer, but I want to learn what's going on in other agencies and how I can be supportive. Laura Robb. Hey guys, my name is Laura. I'm also a federal contractor rather than a federal employee. I spent three and a half years as a contractor at DHS HQ, which then became SISA, the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency. And I've recently finished that contract and just started the FDA. So I have still have connections to the Fed team that I worked with at DHS. And I now have a very large network of FDA employees. And I'm I'm just sort of looking to see what behaviors I can model for my Fed clients and ways that I can be supportive of them and just sort of how I can make suggestions to anybody who expresses to me that they want to do something but don't know what that would be to be helpful. And then Josh, who we think is Josh, Comrade Loke, he says, I'm Josh. It's nice to meet you all. I'm a federal employee for almost five years now. It's not my life. I had a career before it. I will probably soon start a new one outside of the federal government. I don't know what else I should say at this point, except that I'm seeing a lot of abuse happening right now. Um, and I've gotten into a little bit of trouble myself. Molly B. I'm Molly, and I've been a federal employee in a couple of different services for about 28 years. I work in the national security community. And I just, I tell people that my oath to the Constitution is about the only thing that I've managed to be faithful to my entire life. And I'm just really nervous about what's going to happen. Hi, guys. I'm B-A-U, she, her pronouns. I am not currently a federal worker. However, 
I am in the process of searching for a new job and been applying to a lot of federal jobs. So I figured, you know, be prepared before I get into it rather than having to figure it out afterwards. And also I do a lot of work with Shutdown DC and other groups. And then Elizabeth Wyand. I'm Amy. I work, I work as a federal employee and I've, I've been in bed for the last 18 months or so. I've had some conversations with my other coworkers expressing some concern about what's going to happen next week. So I wanted to come here today in part to, to be a conduit for information kind of along the lines of B and also just sort of channel some of my nervous energy around everything. All right. So, um, any, got anyone want to comment on like, what do you guys think about the backgrounds of some of these individuals uh, participating in this call? Well, and it, it's not only that, right? <clears throat> so it's, it's, it is their backgrounds. Sure. And all of the, obviously our federal government's just riddled with these people. But this is not just happening in the federal government. These are happening in major corporations all across the country. And then the advent of putting in DEI uh, departments and DEI targets just empowered these people to continue to have these meetings and to do what they're doing. And so it just really paints a picture. But you're also looking at the public-private partnership aspect of this, right? Former, former federal employees going to work for corporations or agencies and vice versa. Uh, and, and it's really showing how they're trying to... Uh, how they're trying to infiltrate and what they're doing. And it, it's just pretty astounding. Like this is obviously clearly illegal, like everything about this. And it's a complete subversion of the, of our government and the, and the people's will. So like, I just, I wish more people were here listening. We're probably gonna have to redo this space again, because apparently everybody wants to talk about uh, 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 New Hampshire for some reason, who cares or Israel apparently, but we're going to have to do this space again. We'll break it down again, but yeah, keep going. Millie. Well, I guess just to reset the room so we can kind of really cut, try to amplify this information this, and this message, I just want to ask everyone to please retweet out the space, share the space. Also, um, I tweet. I put my tweet up in the nest. Um, I don't know where it went. Let me see. Um, and, and again, but, for people. Why yeah, you guys here? could go to my, uh, I, I guess, my X page and retweet out the article that I shared. Uh, please go retweet that and share it. Um, and yeah, just retweet the space as well. So. So, uh, uh, and again, I want to remind people that's going to throw a warning because she was reporting on some of this stuff back in 2020 but under the old regime. And so there's going to be a warning and people are saying, well, it's turning us off anyway. I'm like, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I, I, we've been covering censorship forever. We know what happened in the Twitter files. We know what happened in Twitter 1.0. We're going to try to get it hosted elsewhere so we can go over this again. But like, I just need people to understand, like, obviously they do not want this out. Right. And it's not that hard to just click continue, you know, but anyway. All right. So I'm going to continue on. Um, and it says now we're talking about facilitators because um, notice the facilitator of this breakout room was Rachel Goldstein. And she was the one who happened to be working in renewable energy and working with the private sector in uh, basically green energy. Right. So that's interesting. Uh, you know, when you talk about the private partner, the private companies working with the feds in a, a kind of a clandestine way. Um, and she actually was a facilitator. So like I was saying earlier, there was like 19 or so facilitators in this workshop. Um, so I want to go over the facilitators again. So facilitators recruit and host secret meetings with government employees to be used for their official capacities 
in order to advance the radical political agendas of the collective. So I also have in the article the facilitator's guide for federal employee activism workshop for you guys to be able to view it as well as download it. Um, this was a, a document that was basically distributed inside the movement resources um, and inside their activism for federal workers guide that they also shared out. Um, yeah, so I'm going to quote Nadine. Nadine says, we have, we are, I have, she says, we have, I think, 19 or so facilitators who are designed to lead, to help lead these breakouts. So I want to go over really quick. This is a document also in the um, movement resources that I found that talks about affinity groups and the roles of uh, facilitators. And I think this kind of will help you guys wrap your head around like how these these groups all appear to be separate, but yet they're all working together and they're all cooperating together because you can have um, inside the affinity group, you can have members of different political actions. Um, so just to kind of explain that, it says affinity groups are self-sufficient support systems of about five to 15 people. A number of affinity groups may work together toward a common goal in a larger action, or one affinity group might conceive of or carry out an action on its own. Sometimes affinity groups remain together over a long period of time, existing as political support or study groups, and occasionally participating in actions. Affinity groups are composed of people who have been brought together at a nonviolence training or have existing ties such as friendship, living in the same area, or working together. Affinity groups from the basic decision-making bodies of uh, sorry, affinity groups form the basic decision-making bodies of mass actions. So if there's a mass action, there's pockets of these affinity groups. They're usually considered autonomous, independently entitled to develop any form of participation they choose as long as they remain within the nonviolence guidelines. Groups of affinity groups working together are sometimes called clusters. A large action can have several large clusters all working together. In large actions, affinity groups usually send spokespersons to a spokesperson's meeting or spokes council meeting to communicate and coordinate the, to the different groups, act uh, basically decisions, and then bring the coordinated information or proposal back to their respective groups for a final discussion and approval. So um, notice how there was many people that were in, in there talking about being a conduit for information. Um, that's kind of referencing this idea of, um, you know, only so many people attending the main spokes council meeting and then those, um, facilitators going out and communicating with their smaller clusters or smaller affinity groups. Um, and it talks about, um, at meetings, there are different roles that affinity groups can play. And they say that at meetings, facilitators, timekeepers, Record, uh, recorders, vibes, watchers, etc. So facilitators, one of the roles of somebody in an affinity group. So I'm not going to read uh, all of this facilitator summarize their breakout room discussions because it's quite a bit. And uh, I, I'll, I, I'll read a couple parts, but I'm not going to read all of their quotes. Um, so Tim Nafziger said, because this is one of the facilitators, 
We focused on the scenario to purge of disloyal civil servants, and there was a lot of really good ideas about ways to, sh to slow things down and use bureaucracy as part of that slow uh, slowdown. And then, um, let me see. Yeah, there was from I guess from uh, Annie Danger. She says, which Annie Danger was the the tranny. Uh, basically yeah. the trans porn star. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the trans porn star. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of talking about bureaucratic slowdown, especially pairing bureaucratic slowdown with vacation, with sick time, and then also a lot of talk about immediately expanding the circle of coworkers you're talking with about like generally legal and democratic things. And then also like some people were like, I might already refuse a note in the form of a very politely being like, I respect the oath I've already taken. Um, I am here for the Constitution and this democracy. Good day. And then everyone agreed that snitches should not exist, she says. Um, and then, uh, let me see, Jane Doe. Um, she said, we really focus on coordinating with people, you know, because it's a lot harder to get people if everyone is refusing it's harder to get everyone to have to sign in, right? It's much harder if you feel like you're all alone. So she's just referencing building a coalition. And then Benjamin Abrams, who was like that, you know, UK uh, guy working at a university in uh, the UK, which what is he doing in here? Um, the first was making use of existing workplace organizing to stand up to managers and dictates from political appointees, but they in D.C. and the regional offices and potentially drawing on power to do that in contexts where they weren't this, uh, the same strong union links. We thought that we could have simple conversations with coworkers and build small groups to amplify concerns and kind of our messaging with others. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's kind of like, you know, just going over what they talked about. Let me see if this one is a... Then there's the Activism Guide for Federal Workers, which <laughs> is there is there any one way somebody could take over for me reading? I'm like, yes, burnt. yes, I'll take over. Just give me like 30 seconds. I'll get my laptop out. I actually have this document. You've already emailed it to me. We've already gone over it, right? It's the yellow and blue one with the grid. Yes. Okay. Give me like 30 seconds to get set up. By the way, Millie, your website seems to be working properly. Now, I was trying to see if I could get it all pulled over to America Mission, but the videos were not loading properly for me. So, sorry about that. Yeah, I don't well, know. It might have just been too many people all going there at once. Who knows? Millie, I don't care how they define these work. There's just redefining terminology with clustering and, and their various layouts of their designs. But if I put that side by side with the definition of how terrorist cells are designed, you'd see a pattern there somehow. Uh, <laughs> these people, I'm just still amazed. Uh, every everything you, every little section you read, I'm just amazed at how the comparisons are are there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is interesting how they all work together in these little affinity groups and I guess these clusters, right? So there's pockets and hubs, and that's the same way that the internal when we were Walter do you remember when when I, you know I was showing you some of the inside of the sunrise hubs and how they all build out these different hubs and then the hubs compete for the 
grant money. Yeah, that was one of the most amazing parts about that. How, you know, it, it, it appears to me that they can move money quickly to wherever they need them and, and they compete for it within the, you know, within the organization. It's all internal. It's, it's really fascinating stuff. How they, It's a completely well-oiled machine. All of it is. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then the fact that it seemed like they had some kind of like payment system or some way of getting that money to them. Yeah, there was. What was that? That was the, they have ability to issue each other debit cards or maybe credit cards that they can set limits on. My guess is that we were talking about this because it looked to me like they're operating at kind of like a privacy.com situation where they have the ability to issue cards, put a limit on it. So anytime they activate a group of people, they can immediately provide them cash on hand right away. I mean, it, it allows them a lot of flexibility for how they activate their groups. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder how that all pans out because it seemed like they had a 501c3 but then also they had a um, 501c4. And I mean, I don't know if, what that points to, but, you know, I'm not sure how entirely legal that would be. Well, that's the thing about it. Like the deal with those cards, like if it's a privacy.com thing, you can issue that card and you can give you give that number to anybody. And it doesn't necessarily have to be attached to your organization to do it. So they might just have that set up and some other organization that funds them can just provide money to them whenever they want. I mean, it, there's no real way to track that. I mean, just giving someone a credit card number, there's no way you would be able to tell if it came from that organization unless you look directly at their books. But if if what we were looking at is accurate, this this organization is in, is organized enough that my guess is they're outside funding groups. They can just put cash there and then not tell anybody where it comes from. And, it, it, you know, there's no way you could track that. It could even be private individuals. I mean, it doesn't really necessarily need to be a business, so... Absolutely. And you were even you had brought some really interesting insight when we were looking at the activism for federal guide for federal workers. And what was your thoughts on it, Walter, while we're waiting for Aaron to pull that up? Well, the federal workers, all of that, you know, it's it's the Hatch Act is one part of this. But, you know, when you're brought in as a federal employee and when you're brought in there, you are given very strict rules that you cannot apply any of that stuff. Any of your job, any of your actual government job cannot be done in a partisan way. You're supposed to operate as a neutral arbiter of within the government. So the fact that the people, the fact that these people are actually acting as activists is 100 percent illegal. I mean, it's every single one of these government employees, if this came out, they would all be could easily be fired. I mean, now, would they be fired? That's up to debate as of right now, because I believe that half the government's full of these people right now. But, you know, the reality is that if things worked as they were supposed to work, they should and would be fired. I mean, what do you think Congress should do? Like, what do you think should actually happen to properly, like, look into these groups for what they've been doing, their, their violations? Well, that's the deal, right? I mean, if the DOJ actually did its job properly, it should be the one that's supposed to deal out um, punishments for federal employees. I mean, this is the issue we have with the FBI, with with the DOJ, all of these organizations, they have no real check on them right now. And when they're filled with people that are radicals, I mean, how do you even get things done? That's that's the real issue. And I think that's the only way the only way that this any of this gets fixed is actually Schedule F, which you were talking about earlier. Schedule F and Project 2025 is the only solution. You have to remove the top two or three layers of management from these federal agencies for them to be able to function properly. And further than that, I think the better option would be to actually move all of the, the agencies out of D.C., 
which is something that I know Trump's team is looking at doing. Robert Bose, we talked to him the other day, he was saying that they're definitely looking at doing that. And I think it's the only solution. And it, it, it's been proven to work. In the 1990s, uh, Senator Robert Byrd, he actually slipped into a budget bill that he was going to move the fingerprint facility out of the out of FBI DC headquarters and move it to Clarksburg, West Virginia. And as a result of that, 2,000 something federal uh, FBI agents had to relocate from DC to Clarksburg, West Virginia. And as a result, like 70% of them quit. So it, it's a proven strategy and it's something that you don't even actually need Schedule F to do. I mean, this is what my, t- um, when my family met with Trump's team in 2015, before he was elected, we told him that he was gonna have to build a federal facility in Patuka, Wyoming, and stack it with every single one of the federal agency, like all the top level management say, you're not fired, we're just gonna move you out here. And this is where you have to work if you want to remain in the agency. And as a result, you would have lost most of them. But they, I don't think Trump's team really understood what the depth of the um, activists that were embedded in this, embedded in all of the agencies. Obama's team, the first term, I would say that it was bad. But the second term is when he really stacked all of these agencies with these people. I mean, it, he put every single person at the top two or three levels of management in almost every single agency is a radical activist right now. And that, I mean, that's, what were the numbers we looked at, Millie? Was it a million, one million employees? My guess is that they are, all of those people are GS-15s or higher. That's, if I, they, they keep saying three million, but I, I just, I find it really hard to believe and wrap my head around. But um, I mean, that's a lot of people if that, that if it is that bad, I don't even know. I mean, what that would look like or entail, but you know, I think that, what you are saying that Trump's team should have done, um, I think if he would have probably done that, that would have helped. But I also think that with how paranoid they were about um, Trump's Schedule F executive order, um, I think it really speaks volumes that they really didn't like that. But I think really just to kind of bring it home with like people who might be like, well, if Trump did an executive order, why was he still dealing with these people? Um, that executive order wasn't supposed to come into effect, I think, until um, t- until it was uh, actually he actually drafted the order in the last few months of his term. And it was about to go into effect in December, if I'm not mistaken. Well, it's supposed it's to be re- like right when um, Biden came in, right before Biden was going to be in there. And then the second Biden was in, he overturned it. That was the first thing he did. Yeah. And it, the deal is that what a lot of people don't know, though, is that Biden, he may have gotten rid of. Um, yes, trust. Just send it to me. Um, one second. I'll send you my email address. But yeah, what a lot of people don't know is that even though he removed Schedule F, one of the things that Biden is still doing currently is he's taking the theory that Schedule F is going to operate under called the unitary executive theory. And he's going he's actually already doing this. There was a Slate article about this back in July um, that. Biden is actually removing a lot of the people that Trump put in place through the same theory that Schedule F is operating under. So it's it's not like this this system, Schedule F, is some radical idea. It's based in the Constitution. I mean, it, if it's based on the idea that the executive, the head executive, has the ability to control these agencies and is fully in charge of every single one of these agencies. I mean, they should be able to remove people. And that's always, it's, it's kind of gone out the window as the bureaucracy started to grow. I mean, it's, it, it's difficult to say that it's a good idea to fire the entire federal government every four to eight years. 
I mean, the country is so complex now and there's so many people living here now. So it's difficult to say that it's a good idea. But it, as it stands, what you result in is if you don't get rid of at least the top few people, the top levels of management, then you get a administration that still works for the previous administration. And I think that is what Trump underestimated when he came into office. And I think he relied on the people around him thinking that they were going to have his back when in reality, they were just working for their friends that worked in the agencies. So if Trump actually comes in again, I think you're going to see DC is going to be absolutely abolished. I mean, I, I don't, I don't see any way that he keeps most of the management. I think the reality is that he's probably going to try and move half of the agencies in D.C. out and you're going to see a mass layoff and mass firing of most of the federal employees, which it's about time. Yeah. So that's what my pinned tweet is all about. The Project 2025. It's 920 page document of doing exactly that. Schedule F is just a small part of it. You can actually use the Office of Personnel Management and get rid of even most of the employees that even cabinet members normally wouldn't have access to because of unions and everything else. This can be done through the Office of Personnel Management. That's what Project 2025 is. And so um, you'll be getting into that. So uh, down, down in the chat, up in the nest, uh, I got this document. Walt, I just need you to DM me your email address so I can give you a, the full PDF. So I just sent it to you. Yeah, so people can see the link for themselves. But I just took like three screenshots to kind of give you a general basis of what this is. What am I getting? Um. So let me get into this real quick. Give me a second. All right. So up in the nest, I've got this. If this is these are screenshots because it was a full PDF, so I need to get it hosted. Um, this is called the Activism Resources for Federal Employees. Well, and the so PDF is actually on my website, and you can download it. There's a button to download it. Oh, is is it already on there? Okay. Okay. A lot of people aren't okay. Well, I've got it up here. You'll go to our website and download the full the full doc. Um, this document says activism resources for federal workers. This document was originally created by a grassroots group called Tacoma Park Mobilization for U.S. government employees who want to better know their rights inside and outside the workplace to think about strategies for balancing their obligations as federal employees and their professional or personal values in, from in 2017. It has been updated for 2020. Feel free to circulate widely. If you'd like to organize an event, here's a facilitator's guide. Now, you guys remember the facilitator's guide? In the thread that I'm res responding to with these screenshots is also uh, the facilitator's guide that we went over a couple weeks ago. The, the full thing's there. Uh, this document is organized into several sections, which you can click through on the parts and most interested in when viewing this document online. For agency-specific advice, please consult your own agency's inspector general or ethics office for legal advice. Consult a lawyer. This document will be updated, so if you find it useful or information incorrect uh, and you want to suggest something to add, please contact, you know, Feds for Democracy, right? It's the same. Feds for Democracy is the videos that, and then everything that the Millie's been breaking down. Uh, this is also their contact on this document. But what's interesting about this document as well, on this first page, take a look at a lot of the governmental agencies that are listed here. I believe, I think that's Space Force, National Parks and Wildlife, NOAA, um, and various different groups. And if you look, they've, like FDA, and if you've looked, they altered the logos to be like, almost like a second bureaucracy within the bureaucracy that is causing all this havoc. And this is very important to note, like Alt-FDA, and they've got like a, a fist with like some National Parks logo. It's really interesting. Um, 
And then what I also included from the screenshots, I think is probably what we're going to get to, but that whole document has links and you guys can deep dive that all you want, pull it off Millie's site. But um, there's this, there's this graph they have, and it's called the types of tactics and implications. So if you look at, it's broken up into action, general description and potential retaliation and for your consideration. So as an example, the action would be a nonviolent direct action protest and rallies generally speaking, can participate outside of work hours freely in person or during work hours if taking annual leave. Potential retaliation for your consideration. Be sure participation online or in person is not occurring within work hours unless you are on leave. Do not wear any federal insignias or identification when participating. And you keep going down and it's got discuss ethical ramifications of laws. So what they're saying here is right here on the discuss ethical ramifications of laws or policies with colleagues this is for them in these conversations about laws and regulations that they're going to be putting in place is them to be able to push back and say, well, what are the ethical considerations? Have we thought about this? And it's just screwing up any policy that the administration wants to put in. And they said the general description is discussing impacts, potentials and unintended consequences with colleagues in strategy meetings or happy hours. Evaluate current events and impacts on work activities in terms of serving the Constitution. Now, it says potential retaliation for your consideration. Be sure not to force views on other colleagues, particularly if you're a supervisor. Foster spaces of communication and inquiry. And then you've got demand direct direct action, direction in writing to, to implement. And it goes on there. You can write to administrative officials. You can start you know, asking questions and, and stopping the process, slowing it down because you have questions. Uh, now, supervisors may perceive you as being difficult. So, you know, take accordingly. Go public with critiques. Share information on social media about issues, incompetence, or unethical behavior. So you can start creating a groundswell on social, basically social media, saying, oh, this administration is completely incompetent. Look, they can't get anything done. Meanwhile, they're subverting it at every turn inside the administration itself. Uh, slow down or intentional incompetence. Reduce the pace of carrying out unethical activities. Example, do fewer things. Consider limitations of efforts that could cause work to be rerouted for efficiency. So do just enough, but then you can still maintain control in that in that chain that you need to do so they don't reroute it to somebody else for more efficiency. Um, also, additional workload. Continue activities after hours or beyond written work scope to support the mission. So saying, if, hey, if this is good policy because we got Biden in there and it's going to advance to green policy, work overtime to make sure this, sh- this stuff gets through. And it could be particularly important if on capacity and your work has been reduced. Consider your work-life balance limitations, da, da, da. Um, refuse and or whistleblow illegal orders. Now, keep in mind what they say, illegal orders. <laughs> These aren't illegal orders, but that's, they're setting the precedent that this thing, that anything that Trump does is illegal. Therefore, we must leak and whistleblow. Pursue legal counsel to argue against carrying out activities in opposition to congressional author- authorization or direction. So one thing I want you, I want to point out. You guys remember Aaron Stevenson, you guys remember Tara Rodas, Kyle Serafin, all of these guys were whistleblowers, Garrett O'Boyle, uh, Steve Friend, the, a lot of FBI guys. They were whistleblowers. They were not afforded protected whistleblower status. Right? And instead, they were retaliated against, ultimately like given zero caseload, and then removed from their position for not being effective. And so that retaliatory action for actual whistleblowing, people weren't getting being afforded the actual protection. However, what they're saying here is a lot of you, if we're on the same team, then you, you're whistleblowing. Therefore, you're going to get all the afforded all of it that you can. 
And they're saying it could freeze other work efforts and result in FOIA requests. Ensure all information, including spoken requests of you, are fully documented. Then Fed flu. Then the next one here, this is interesting. Well, before I move on, does anybody want to add anything? I'm not looking at the screen at all. So. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is the part that Millie and I were that she just asked me about, like this, all of this stuff, slow walking policy, slow walking things, intentionally gumming up the system that all of that stuff. If you're doing that with a political intention, that is illegal. That's what I was trying to get at before. All of these government employees, you cannot intentionally not do your job because you don't like it. That's the, that's the the entire point of acting as a government employee. You're supposed to do your job based on who tells you what to do. It, it, it all of this stuff is intentionally gumming up the system that's what these people could all be fired for if you could prove it so that's i just wanted to add that context oh absolutely and you know it's also like they would take you know sick outs was the strategic sick leaves um i mean there's a lot of different things in there obviously leaking documents but one thing i really want to draw your guys's attention to is um if you notice on the very like front page the first page of the document um, they actually have little logos up there, um, like where they put alt over it. So alt FDA, alt, you know, all different departments. Right. And that kind of really, it, 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 it reminds me of when that comrade Loke was saying, we're basically a Lithuanian government in exile, um, meaning essentially like they were kind of building like their own parallel, uh, government structure to be able to uh, work from within, but also possibly, who knows, maybe they'll get big enough, you know, to where they could just at any point decide who the leader is, right? And, and do whatever they want. That's right. Well, yeah. Millie, I, I would liken that to when Valerie Jarrett left the White House and they did that article that talked about how she was moving into Obama's basement to run a shadow government to undermine the Trump administration. And I mean, that was in 2017. So I think we are seeing the, the results of what they put together. Absolutely. Keep going, Aaron. Well, the, and the next screenshot that I shared is strategic tactics, depending upon your role. So it says like your type of role general description, actions for everyone, actions for some, if strategic. And these are, it's entitled, There, you have many tools in your toolbox. So, you know, policy enforcement, right? So roles in environmental management, uh, regu regulatory commissions, customs, border patrol, little wiggle room to interpret rules or orders, but can apply enforcement based on personal experience, right? So they're, they're, they're suggesting that the, the, a lot of this stuff can be implemented based on your personal experience. If you, if you have experience in subversion, of black and white policy, how to make them gray. And what it's saying here as well is that like, depending upon your role, so like they're talking to federal workers. If, are you in EPA? Are you in various different uh, regulatory commissions? Are you customs, border patrol? And then it says action for everyone. Determine your own lines in the sand. Explain what it means for democracy to be under attack to family, friends, and colleagues. Listen to that. Democracy is under attack because America elected Trump instead of Hillary, right? And so now we need to explain to everybody what it really means for democracy to be under attack. And then that is a justification for what you're doing or saying. And then you have actions for some if they're strategic, refusing orders, striking coalitions, slow walk enforcement, gum up bureaucratic processes, question legal authority for action, stage a sick out. Then you've got people that's like in research, research development and program management, obviously explains what that is. 
and kind of sharing opinions on social media outside of work hours. Talk to your colleagues about what is happening. Rebranding your work, but continue the thrust of efforts. Publicly refusing orders. I'm going to talk about this for in a second. Publicly refusing orders. Striking coalition. Continue work in a volunteer capacity. Now you go through this and it says it, but it says refusing orders in public. And one of these things it says you can actually uh, refuse work in public of your superiors in front of others. So you're kind of creating this, uh, this you know, this effort, and you're and you're and you're showing your solidarity with everybody else and empowering others around you and causing all these gum ups and problems. And you know, and when you look at this in the context of 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 how slow government moves you really start to get a picture as to why, as to why when people make the argument that government's never going to be your answer because it can't fix anything. I'm not saying the government's the answer, but I'm saying that you have people intentionally been doing this for 30 years, as you've heard on these videos. They're doing a lot of this stuff. This is not new stuff. And they're having these sessions and training sessions. And it, it, it's absolutely crazy. And if you go through more of this document, this is really interesting. So I'm going to go over this real quick. Is that five steps to a safer digital life? Obviously, you go through the passwords and they tell you how to, how to block all that. But now the actions and strategies. This was a highlighted box before I got to what I just went over. And it says, uphold the most exacting standards of personal and professional integrity. Showcase the loyal buyer partisan service of your colleagues and call out attempts to impose partisan litmus tests. Extensively document decisions and their ramifications that are a result of word of mouth directives. Don't leak, but blow the whistle. Uh, push back against loyalty tests, fostering frank internal debate with transparency outside stakeholders. Draw bright red lines of principle and policy that can guide decision making in the future times of chaos and crisis. And this is an adaptation from the uh, from a Washington Post article called "How to Work for a President Who Loathes the Civil Service." Right. So you can kind of see the picture that they're painting here: that Donald Trump is authoritarian, fascist, and we need to save democracy. Therefore, we're going to use this kind of language. And then you can start pushing back and, you know, publicly disagreeing and, and, and disobeying. And it's just if you go through this document, it's just on and on. And they have even they have articles kind of bolstering their arguments. So if someone's getting this for the first time new, they're like, oh, OK, I guess this does seem to be pretty, pretty easy. Um, there's a document called to dissent or not to dissent principles of ethical resistance for federal servants. There's dear bureaucrat. My job wants me to lie. <laughs> How to be a hero when the coup comes. These are all documents within this document. Like, guys, I don't think people understand. Like, Millie going through this for years. I've been going through it for months. And every time I find something new, I'm like, oh, well, there's 10 links to other documents. It's just this mass of civil disobedience for federal workers and trainings. And, and I cannot stress you enough. Millie took the time to go through a two-hour video, break it up into an article, and you're hearing their own words. You don't have to take our word for it. Look at the documents. Watch their videos. They're the ones holding the training sessions with 150, 190 people of members of government all over the place. And they're talking about how they've been doing it for 30 years. And this is how they've gotten around it. And this is how they subvert it. This is what's happening within our federal government. And it's just, it's out of control. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's really out of control. And um, so there's quite a bit in here, actually. Um, I just want to add to what you were saying, Aaron, because you were completely like on the target. Uh, you hit the nail on the head with everything you just said. But what I will add is just that um, not only were they pretty much instructing people on workers and things for feds to do inside of their movement resources, but 
they were instructing, you know, the foot soldier protesters on violent tactics that they could take. I mean, they were, they were instructing, um, uh, I guess you could say, uh, people within their movements and their affinity groups to participate in the election, signing up as poll workers. And I actually happened to find a really just, just completely mind blowing document inside of their document hub that they were sharing. And it was basically, I mean, they had a bunch of different stuff pertaining to the election, but this one particular document was just, I mean, I don't know if, just to allude to it, I don't know much about like the exact election laws pertaining to who's supposed to be printing ballots, but I don't think it's supposed to be left-wing people like protesters um, and, and activists. But yeah, okay, so before we get to that, I guess we'll keep going. Um, Aaron, you did a really good job going through that um, activism resources for federal employees guide, which it is available. If you guys are able to get onto a desktop and get, if you're able to access it on my website, you can download it right now and share it out wherever you guys want to share it out. Repost it places, share it, spread it wide. It's there right now to go download. The other thing is... Um, I also put the full two hour zoom call. So if you guys want to actually sit down and watch the whole thing, just to kind of learn these people's behaviors, how they act and interact and just, you know, take, don't take my word for it. When I quoted some of these people, then that's completely there for you to reference. And, um, you know, there's probably more that I'll end up adding and updating to this article because I forgot to put some of the screenshots of their when their chats light up with solidarity and things, just fun little things like that. Um, but yeah, like just to kind of go over, like, are these violations of the law? Well, just to kind of go over a couple of different laws that might apply uh, in the, in what we just watched. So leaking. So there's 18 us code 798 disclosure of classified information. So if they're leaking classified information, those are crimes. Um, slowing down or gumming up bureaucratic processes. Um, so I think this law might apply. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but I, but these are things I just researched. Um, 923.18 USC 3, subsection 371, conspiracy to defraud the United States, creates an offense if two or more persons conspire either to commit any offense against the United States or to defraud the United States or any agency thereof in any manner or for any purpose. I think that that's one that would probably apply here. Um, strikes. So the law specifically, 5 U.S.C. 7311, specifies that federal employees may not participate in any strike, assert the right to strike, or even belong to a union that asserts the right to strike against the government of the United States. Driving that point home, 18 U.S.C. 1918, 1918 makes it a felony to strike against the United States or belong to a union that asserts the right to strike against the United States. What's more, the Office of Personnel Management can declare an individual who participates in a strike unsuitable for federal employment forever. And by already, the way, by the yeah. way, there it is. The Office of Personnel Management, again, established in 1978 to keep a check on the administrative state, which has also been compromised. Anyway, go ahead, Millie. Yeah, so how do you, that, you make a good point there. How do you fix it when it's been so far gone? How do you fix it, right? There's got to be some good people that care about the Constitution, care about upholding the law inside. The, 
you know? The, yeah, Millie, the executive, the president. Uh, the president and, and cabinet members can actually utilize the Office of Personnel Management to get rid of these employees. That's who does it. That's why Project 2025 is so important. I think that also our congressional representatives, if they were to open an investigation, then I think that it's it would, it would do something, hopefully, because these are, you know, institutions of our own government that that have uh, members in them, employees of them subverting the functioning of our country. I mean, think of it, you know, think of it away from partisan terms. Like, let's not think of it in terms of Trump. Let's think of it in terms of what harm could happen if, for all we know, who was in that call? There could have been people that were, you know, foreign from, I mean, we know that that one guy, um, Benjamin Abrams, is from the UK, but like, we don't know what other foreign people were in there collecting dirt blackmail or having influence over these people. So what I'm getting at here is, having a large body of our own government engaging in these type of subversive illegal activities, it's actually a really big risk, like a security vulnerability risk to our nation. Um, it could really put our nation in a really precarious position that might allow for a foreign country to take the opportunity to utilize these people in order to overthrow a, uh, our government from within, like a Trojan horse. So just taking away the whole Trump aspect, I think, I really think prosecuting or going after people that are engaging in these things within our government is really a nonpartisan issue because it could really affect the security of our country as it stands. Well, and Millie, who's the biggest con- you know, communist country out there? China, right? With the, with the deepest pockets, right? Yeah, I mean, the CCP, and that's the thing, we're going to have to keep researching and digging into these groups and the the shells and all the many different things they've got going on in here just to see, because we don't even know what else we're going to find. That's why I was telling you, Malia, if you need any help just doing research and stuff, let me know, because I'm ready ready to dig in. For sure. But to uh, to bring that point home a little bit further, like, Millie, when you and I were on the phone, well, we're always on the phone, but when we were on the phone for a while and we were looking at all the different like I like to call them Russian dolls of shell funding activism uh, money resources. We kept opening up those Russian dolls and there's another one, there's another one. And it basically went back to Arabella, FTX, Omidyar, and China. So all of these, these groups are essentially at the center of the funding of all of this. And I can assure you, they don't, they don't want to just keep another tree planted, right? Like they're, they're, they're subversion here. You have Omidyar, which is Iranian money. You've got Arabella, which is China, everything money. Uh, you had FTX, which was the complete Democrat uh, donor structure uh, that was operating underneath Arabella. So, like, yeah, like as we expose like the funding mechanisms and that will be some stories moving forward. This needs to come out first so the picture can be painted so that we can show you why the funding mattered. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to kind of uh, go to the next kind of chapter in this because I I added more because there's so much more to this story to this picture so that people can fully wrap their head around it and um, Magna like I said go to this article I put a bunch of the resources that they were sharing inside of their movement resources with a bunch of different like these websites these organizations that they were funneling people to so this is stuff that you guys could all like you know do the research if you if you want to kind of help out like I said there's a list of people that still have we haven't like locked in their identities. Um, there's people, there's, like I said, there's a lot more in here, but if you just, 
download these documents. There's links inside some of the documents that you can follow as well. So I really want to kind of task all of the internet sleuths and the research researchers out there to continue to pull on these threads and research this information. Um, all right. So the next part of this is subverting Trump from the jump. So, um, I don't know, Aaron, are you looking at the article or no, I'll go ahead. Well, okay. actually I'm having trouble pulling it up. Let me see if I can get it. Hang on. Okay. So I'll just start reading this here. Um, subversion against President Donald Trump is nothing new for this group of rogue federal bureaucrats. In fact, their own internal documents evidence that they began their subversive activities shortly after Trump was elected. The D.C. swamp of federal bureaucrats, many of whom were brought in during the Obama administration, were already preparing to resist Trump and undermine his presidency. Federal workers relied on the help and organizing power of left-wing organizations like Shutdown DC, Democracy Kitchen, Sunrise Movement, Unions, Momentum, and a variety of other affinity group appendages. One could think of this body as an octopus, octopus with many tentacles coalescing at the center. Google Docs were made very useful in the organizational communication and dissemination of guides and instructions for subverting the office of the presidency from the beginning. A document titled Federal Service Articles, linked inside the Activism Resources for Federal Workers Guide, was circulated by the group. Starting November 9th, news articles related to federal service under the new administration were cited with a brief below, offering instructions or key insight for federal workers to utilize in their effort to subvert Donald Trump's transition into the presidency and thwarting his administration's policies. So this is actually a pretty uh, mind-blowing document where they were essentially like updating this article repeatedly as it went along. And they were basically live linking um, articles that were being put out really by leftist or left-wing media allies. And then underneath, they were offering their own brief uh, kind of explanation or understanding of that material and what federal workers could do to address that problem. So it kind of served as offering kind of instruction, but it also served as keeping people in the know as to what was going on with Trump, with this fight between Trump and the federal bureaucrats. So um, go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, um, actually, so I've got it pulled up. I figured out a way to trick my, um, anyway. So you're basically, you just read the subverting the tr Trump from the jump. And it's this document, I remember looking at this in, uh, in, the, in the hub. And what it does is it links to articles. This is going to be mind blowing for some people. Um, it was when I first looked at it, because when I saw the whole thing, it made me realize what this means. So, like, we see people all the time on social media, on, you know, podcasts, whatever. They're like, oh, look at this dumbass article from from uh, David Frum. Or look at this stupid article in Politico. These people are ridiculous. And we would explain to people that a lot of these were used in circular fact-checking operations, right? So they, the article was written specifically, even though it's complete BS, it was published by a mainstream publishing art, uh, uh, outlet, and then it was used to, like, uh, well, like a community note on Twitter, but like 
fact checks. Uh, so we do fact checks on Facebook or, or Wikipedia fact checks or whatever. They would write these articles. But what's more interesting about this is that as you really peel back and look at this, it wasn't just designed to use circular reporting for fact checks to, to, to maintain lies. It was also to centralize essentially like propaganda that can be packaged and used for recruiting more people. They're like, wow, this this makes sense. See the point that they made? And, and wow, they have 17 articles from FedWeek and Forbes and Intercept and Yale Journal on regulation and the American Spectator. And they've got they've got ProPublica. Like, wow, okay, so this makes sense. So the point you just made in my training here, and I'm looking at this document and I have access to all these articles that are written by PBS and Politico and, and the ACLU. Well, this must be legit. Democracy must be under attack, right? This is part of, of centralizing the propaganda to create more activists within the federal government. So it's not just that they were writing all these stupid articles to signal to the base or to you know, cement propaganda for the public. This is also designed to centralize the propaganda for creating more activists. When you see this, you can't unsee it. And it's, it's hard to explain. I hope, Millie, did I explain it right? Yeah, I, I think that you've really done a, a really good job at explaining it. And it's really key because, you know, ProPublica, they're citing ProPublica articles, political articles, and then, of course, other, a bunch of other kind of left-leaning um, news, news publications or, 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 you know, news media, let's just say. And, uh, yeah, we know that they kept talking about ProPublica and Politico. Uh, repeatedly as being places that were friendlies for them to leak documents to that would protect them. Right. So um, they, yeah, so it's, it's key, but it also evidences the timelines. So I, in the article, I put in, in image form, some of the ones that I thought really stood out, but obviously like you can download the full document yourself and read through all of them. Cause there's also quite a few where they're, like they're complaining about things that Trump's doing and, oh, he's being so horrible to us federal bureaucrats. And, you know, there's things that they kind of victimize themselves over. But then there's also quite a bit of offensive posts. So like just to read kind of some of like the um, the titles here, uh, like Trump versus the federal bureaucracy. Right. And th th again, this is them referencing the three million strong army of bureaucrats that are ready to go up against Trump. Um, so Donald Trump's triumph over Hillary uh, presages an even bigger battle ahead against the heart of the Democratic establishment, the federal workforce. This army of bureaucrats, almost 3 million strong, gave Clinton a large majority of their votes, over 90% of the campaign contributions. So just really kind of talking about how much you know, the federal people are on their side, the Democratic side, and that they're going to be a force that Trump's going to have to, you know, deal with. Um, bureaucratic resistance below. Uh, then they go into how to leak to ProPublica. We are a team of investigative journalists devoted to exposing abuse of power. If you've got any evidence showing powerful people doing a wrong thing, here's how to let us know while protecting your identity. What's ahead for feds in the Trump administration? Some of the major initiatives that may lie ahead for federal workers. Will Trump play nice if journalists launch a FOIA offensive against his administration? 
which could be even signaling that that's something to do. Attention federal employees, if you see something, leak something. If you're a public servant in Washington, D.C., you may be worried about what your job will look like after January 20th, who you'll be working for, what you'll be asked to do. You might be co concerned that the programs you've developed will be killed or misused or that you'll be ordered to do things that are illegal or immoral. You may be thinking you have no choice or that your only alternative is to quit, but there's another option. If you become aware of behavior that you believe is unethical, illegal, or damaging to the public interest, consider sharing your information securely with us. History shows the enormous value of government workers who discover abuses of power collaborating with journalists to expose them. Yeah, so. Yep. You want me to keep going for you? I know you were trying to. Take <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Um, so the next one is from Just Security in January 17th of 2017, and this was entitled Dissenting from Within the Trump Administration. And it says, quote, as we near the inauguration, we write to follow up on a post by offering a catalog of the ways that of those working in government can respond when asked to participate in actions they believe to be illegal or unethical or when they become aware of such actions taken by others. We break the options down into four categories. One working from within, two, reaching out to allies in other parts of the government, three, whistleblowing, and four, last resort measures. This is a general outline of options that apply to a wide range of federal employees. And we recognize, however, that the decisions about how to dissent are deeply contextual. The precise options available will vary among other factors. The agency and the individual's position within it, thoughtful government employees can serve as a powerful check on government abuse and indeed help with their colleagues and their supporters and their clients to avoid legal and ethical trouble. The outline will have been, be provided here shows that it's a robust array of options available to every single executive branch employee to challenge illegal or unethical actions. That is a source of immense strength, one that we are all going to count on in the next four years unfold, right? That's written in 2017. So, I mean, like they're just setting the stage, right? Next one, one thing federal employees can do before Trump takes power. This is one thing. <laughs> this is telling them how to subvert before he, his administration even comes in and they do the transition, right? So they're setting up already before the, the administration even comes in. And they're saying, if so, if you're in a federal employee, one, especially one who's worked on any number of high profile issues in the Obama administration, i.e. climate change, which comes to mind and along a list of others, perhaps now would be a good time to buy insurance. Listen to this. There's a company called Federal Employee Defense Services. They offer insurance policies that can provide legal fees if you're caught up in an investigation. <laughs> Full disclosure, my firm represents some clients who have Fed's insurance. Fed's doesn't insure your reputation if you're being targeted by Shaffitz or Trump. But if you're worried about not being able to afford a lawyer, Fed's takes care of that. Because really, there's just about nothing you can do to protect yourself from maybe what's coming. This is it's just absolutely nuts. This was, post, this was published by Politico in January 23rd of 2017, Revenge of the Bureaucrats. Quote, the government is a place where it's easier to keep something from getting done than it is to actually do something, said Robert Shea, who was an official during uh, W's office, office of Management and Budget. All of the work that the new administration wants to get accomplished will depend on the speed and productivity of the federal workforce. Ostracizing the massive federal workforce comes with its own political perils. The vast majority, about 85%, are based out of Washington, D.C., meaning Trump could anger workers all over the country, including key battleground states. Cox, like others that are interviewed for the story, noted that most career federal employees are used to a political changing of the ground of the guard 
and they take their role as nonpartisan government overseers seriously, end quote. So, you know, ended up with really nice language when they're basically suggesting here that uh, if you all are pissed off, you guys can completely screw this administration and not get anything done. So you could have your revenge, the revenge of the bureaucrats. Next, government bites back. Civil servants troll Trump and then leak info. Guys, this was published in PBS January 27th of 2017, or January 25th of 2017. In response to Trump's hiring freeze for federal agencies and a communications blackout, some official social media accounts have tweeted out messages decidedly at odds with this agenda, and leaks are flowing into newsrooms across the federal government. Some agencies have been notably subversive in their messages, passing quotes, posting quotes and commentary that we've seen as trying to bait their new boss into a confrontation. <laughs> Former cabinet officials say the president would be wise not to underestimate the power of the civil service, which not only has the ability to slow progress of new regulations, but also inside knowledge to sound alarms when needed. Quote, a CEO of a private company doesn't answer to shareholders or a board. If you say jump, somebody says somebody jumps. That, thank God, is not the way the government operates. You, I, I'm, Jen, I'm going to come to you. Do you guys see what they're doing here? Like, th- th- this is... This is really the swamp, right? I mean, yes, we understand the cabinet positions and we understand Congress people and we understand consulting class and we understand all these things, but they're giving the guide on how to completely slow down any effort, subvert the will of the American people of elected officials by using their bureaucratic energy and and, and effectiveness to, to basically just completely subvert everybody. Oh, oh, just wait. They acknowledge oh, yes. that they're the swamp later on they do they acknowledge it so go ahead jen i was setting it up (laughs) well yeah so i mean for the first time i think i realized why they're kind of like so brazen about it is because they were posting all of these articles and stuff back in 2017 like literally being like yes we are we are trying to stop trump yes we are subverting and none of us like we didn't take the i don't know if it's that we didn't take them serious or like i don't know what it was but i think that gave like brazen them like made them more brazen to do what they did in 2020 because we didn't catch on to the real stuff that was happening before that it's because the these left-wing media sites were shielding who the leakers were so they can go neener 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 behind the media outlets and the journalists and, and leak documents and the, the Trump administration knew that there was a problem. They just didn't know who was doing it. And guess what? Now we do. Right. That's exactly right. <laughs> we named names, Millie, and you got video in their faces. And and again, that was the whole point. Right. Now, granted, yes, they would write fake stories to like pr- push propaganda. They say a person familiar with another person's thinking or whatever. But a lot of times it was a person familiar with the matter or a person associated with the office. These are all leakers. These are all people bringing stuff and twisting it, and then they don't have to actually name the name. And because they have the institutional power, no one's forcing them to name the name. It's, it's just really disgusting. And the era of clickbait headlines, and when people only reading the headlines and not the articles, is this is what's done damage to it. And social media accelerated the ability for them to be able to do this. It's really quite pernicious. So let's get back into it. What do you say? Uh, this was the next yeah. one. Yeah, yeah so the, just really quick, just to preference this next one, you're kind of like, okay, whatever, employees, ha- government employees have opinions too. Like, I don't get it. But when you read the ones that happen at the later dates, you'll get why they're setting the stage here. And it, it, it almost points to that this was instruction. 
That's a great point. And this one is entitled, by the ACLU, mind you, January 25th of 2017, government employees get to have opinions too. The new administration is entitled to use official channels of government, whether they be press briefings or websites or social media accounts, to put out its own messages. And it can decide what federal employees are allowed to communicate when they are on the job. But the First Amendment still protects those employees' ability to speak in their private capacities on their own time about matters that concern the public. The Supreme Court has stated clearly that public employees cannot be fired for speaking of issues of public concern as private individuals. Practically speaking, that this means that with the possibility exception of a certain high-ranking government officials, an employee can speak on personal time and in a personal capacity about matters that affect the public. And then there's the next one by Salon. They kind of attached onto this, and that was for, uh, Donald Trump is already trying to muzzle leakers, but government employees have broad free speech rights, and that was a Salon rag the day prior in 2017 on the 24th. Now, next one, this is from Open Democracy, and it was called an inside-outside strategy for defending the U.S. Republic. Historically, civil servants have used a a, a range of tactics to challenge government policies deemed unethical or unconstitutional. In his famous, quote, 198 methods of nonviolent action, sociologist Gene Sharp, Mr. Color Revolutionary Godfather, uh, listed actions ranging from the wearing of symbols by government workers to selective refusal of assistance to deliberate inefficiency and selective non-cooperation by enforcement agents to quasi-legal evasions or delays to non-cooperation by constituent governmental units. And it says the article specifically describes examples for when federal workers used to, quote, slow down, build a record, leaking information, enlisting supportive inspector generals and suing the agency and resigning. Listen to that entire process. This was part of Gene Sharp's um, civil disobedience work and color revolution, if you want to call it that, which I do. It says, this article describes specific examples. So this is a timeline of how they do it. Just a specific examples for when federal workers used first the slowdown, built a record, then they leaked the information, and then they enlist the support of inspector generals and then sue the agency and resign. Right. So, and if you heard, like in the, in the recorded calls earlier that we played, you heard, you heard one person saying, I'm absolutely willing to give up my job. I, don't, I, don't, I, can, I can take another job elsewhere so I can afford to do this. And these are the people that were doing this kind of, I don't know, a suicide pilot, basically. And that's what they were doing. I mean, these people are just, they, they, they're just insane. The next one, agency supporters take to Twitter in defiance of Trump administration. And this was in Fed Smith of January 29th of 2017. After the Trump administration issues a direct, issued a directive to limit agency communications, various tweets and Twitter accounts began popping up, apparently in defiance of the new administration's policies. The ACLU attorney Esha Bandery wrote a blog post that federal employees are not allowed to say whatever they want at work while using official government channels of communication. However, she said that federal employees are allowed to speak their minds as private citizens. So they, they started popping up a bunch of Twitter accounts. And what do you know it? Twitter 1.0 was there to protect them, astroturf them, and boost that message. How many of those people have run off to Mastodon and uh, Blue Sky now once uh, Elon took over? These were the people melting down. I'm not going to get a blue check. I I refuse. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, the whole thing. (laughs) This was written in Blue Oregon, uh, January 30th of 2017, Sanctuary for Federal Employees. So not many of the employees of those agencies will have the financial resources to safely resign in protest, what I was talking about earlier they're in public service. They can't afford long periods of unemployment. We need to give them safe harbor. Ideally, we hire them to continue doing the same work, like collecting the data from those satellites. But in any event, we need to promise them that if they resign in protest and tell the world what's going on, 
somehow their mortgages will still need to be paid. It will be a huge service to the nation and the world if the governors Brown and Governor Inslee could make that commitment. Yes, it would cost money, which is why it would be nice if some rich progressives agreed to pay for those mortgages. If someone creates a nonprofit, grassroots donations could. Man. I mean, that that one right there, it, you know, when when they were talking earlier about the resigning protest, do you see how then later it sets up for the next one? Like they'll say things initially that lay the groundwork and then they continually add to it. But there'll be all kinds of posts in between. So it's actually telling a, a story through kind of like steganography. Yeah. It's so crazy. And they just, they set it up one after the other. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's bananas. And like, they're talking about, like, think about how many, how many of these activist governors and attorneys general and secretaries of state and all these people in these governments, I mean, shit, even city councils and stuff. They've just created this large outlet to be able to subvert government at every level, the wheel of the American people for the greater good and standing in solidarity. And then we'll, we'll make sure you're taken care of when you, when you, when you check out. Meanwhile, real whistleblowers get their entire lives ruined and they get attacked by these same blue haired goofballs wearing these stupid pins, these short haircuts, wearing black lives matter flags in their, in their driveway. Like stop. I just, uh, so here we go. Career officials. You are the last line of defense against Trump foreign. This is from foreign policy. January 30th. Your jobs have never been more important. You are patriots who work for the American people, largely out of sight and with little recognition or glory. This is what I was talking about earlier. I'm going to read this one more time. Remember when I was talking about how easy it is to subvert a lot of these people because they felt like they don't really contribute anything and they're just checking in every day and they're in the most vanilla, black and white um, corporate government office and they just want to feel like they matter. So then they get this this really cool person that says really cool things and they have these meetings at the coffee shop and they're going to stand in solidarity and orange man bad. When you take back this country, now they feel like they're part of something. It's so easy. It's so easy to co-op these people. So this this uh, this post, career officials, you're the last line of defense against Trump. Your jobs have never been more important. You are patriots who work for the American people, largely out of sight and with little recognition or glory. And your job remains to keep them safe and secure as you have always worked to do. Keep providing fact-based, high-quality, informed analysis, advice, and recommendations uphold and make sure the U.S. government's policies and actions reflect the values, principles, and laws that make American exceptional. Speak truth to power. Identify allies and upend hierarchy to get your message through. Whether drafting memos or briefing principles, ensure that decisions are grounded in facts, constrained by law, and advance U.S. interests. Document and preserve everything. In many ways, you're the last line of defense against illegal, unethical, or reckless actions. And again, now they're, now they're saying that it's not, it can't just be legal or illegal or mandated by position. You can call anything subjectively uh, unethical or reckless. And this, see, do you see how they gray area this stuff? When we open the space, this is what I was talking about. Perception and gray area. Even when law and process is black and white, we got to get into the gray area. So if it's, even if it's unethical in your mind or reckless in your mind, which the first week of this administration confirmed will abound. History has shown us that implementation of such policies depends on a compliant bureaucracy of obedient individuals who look the other way and do as they're told. Do what bureaucracy does well, slow roll, obstruct and constrain, resist, refuse to implement anything illegal, unethical or unconstitutional, 
Una Hathaway and Sarah Wiener provide some important resources and on ways for government employees to respond to illegal or unethical actions. Man. This one is from the Washington Post. Oh, boy. Uh, January 31st, 2017. Resistance from within. Federal workers push back against Trump. But there's another level of resistance in the new president that is less visible and potentially more troublesome to the administration. A growing wave of opposition from federal workers charged with implementing any new president's agenda. At a church in Columbia Heights last weekend, dozens of federal workers attended a support group for civil servants seeking a forum to discuss their opposition to the Trump administration. And 180 federal employees have signed up for a workshop next weekend where experts will offer advice on workers' rights and how they can express civil disobedience, i.e. the videos that we've been playing for like the last three hours. <laughs> so just to be clear, um, leaders of the government workers' unions and other associations say their members will do their jobs professionally and energetically, even if they disagree with the president's politics or methods. Quote, you don't have to read all the rest of this stuff at the bottom of that. You can skip through. It's just them quoting their... The, their pats on the back. Yeah, no problem. And then again, they've got uh, this piece from Politico in February of 2017. Federal workers turned to encryption to thwart Trump. <laughs> so federal employees worried that Donald Trump will gut their agencies, creating new email addresses, signing up for encrypted messaging apps, and looking for other protected ways to push back against the administration's agenda. I.e., we've got an un- we've got unfriendly, actual Democratic uh, elected president coming in, and we can't do all the shit that we've been doing because they're, they're not going to want this subversion within the government. So let's move it off to encrypted devices and open up new emails and we can open up new lines of communication instead of just doing it out in the open like we've been doing forever because the administrations in the past, they don't care. They're, they're going along with this. Whether inside the environmental whether inside the EPA, within the Foreign Service, on the edges of Labor Department or beyond, employees are using new technology as well as old-fashioned approaches such as private face-to-face meetings, to organize letters, talk strategy, or conduct media outlets and other groups to express their dissent. The, e- the EPA employee added that the goal is to create a network across the agency of people who will raise red flags if Trump's appointees do anything unlawful. The federal employees interviewed for this story stress that they see themselves as nonpartisan stewards of the government, but several also said they believe they have a duty to speak out. They feel policy is undermining their mission, right? To be clear, policy that's set forth by the executive if they if it's not going along with their mission then they're not doing it no this is what we want now do you see what they've done here right this fourth branch of unelected government that's stuff i talk about all the time this is how dangerous it is this is why they in 1978 they created the office of personnel management to be able to keep control of these things but that's been corrupted too so it's this is this is what this is why government sucks, guys. Just to be clear, this is it is by definition subversion, subverting the government, subverting the office of the presidency. That's what it is. And I don't know if it would be considered a coup because I think that's like when you overthrow. But like if they're if they're actively working to undermine his administration the whole time, I mean, I don't know. Go ahead, Jen. Well, what do you call an extended coup, right? Because if we're looking at this, the coup was when they started forming the shadow government out of Obama's basement, and they just continued right on through. Um, It it really seems that the coup started as soon as Donald Trump was elected. Absolutely. And I love how you worded that, by the way, an extended coup. Well, and it is. 
I don't know what you need to call it, but like, that's what it is. Well, and, it, and here's the thing. Let me pull out a little bit. So it's not just this language here. because I, I kind of want to give a point here. You know, we've always complained about what goes on in DC is just business as usual. And if, it, if there's no business as usual, they'll try to crush you, buy you off or change your opinion or get, get rid of you. So what this is here is just, it's just really the evidence. It's just, they, this is the reality of many people within the government for years that have done this unimpugned, like they've done this unimpeded. And you finally get a proper representation as the government was supposed to be when it was formed. And they're like, nah, 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 it's not for us. Sorry, that's not what we're doing here. Uh, we run this. You may not know my name. You may not even know I exist. But I have seven ways from Sunday to screw up any policy that you want to implement. And then we will also attack you. Then we will also leak everything, twist it, and leak it to friendly press. And then they get the clicks and we get our little win. Like, this is what this is. And so when you go through these documents and you look at this stuff, it's just crystal clear. So, yeah, an extended coup, I, I think that's great. It, it's 100% subversion. And it is 100% going against the interest of the American public. And in the next article here, that's I think it's a perfect time where we move right into this. Uh, I already went through, yeah, I already went through that. There's the sabotage. This is Washington Post prods government workers to derail his presidency and an anti-Trump resistance movement is growing within the U.S. government. That was in Vanity Fair, February 1. Uh, now here, and again, this is something that I was talking about before, but this is really important to note. We went through the encryption, right? We talked about how whether you're in the EPA or within foreign services, this is how you, you just, if you're, you feel like you're being undermined, that you don't agree with the policy, that you're just going to go with this anyway. Now we're really going to start getting into it, right? So the, like the leaks are coming out of the Trump White House right now that are totally bananas. Washington Post, February 2017, quote, why all the leaking? I've got two theories. One, Trump only really listens to things once they are presented to him via the media. Or two, there are people at senior levels within the administration who have major concerns about Trump and his fitness for office. In the long tradition of whistleblowers, they are using selective leaks to make sure that people know what is really going on inside the White House. Neither theory is good for thing, good thing for Trump. He is someone who has made it very clear, both in the business world and his brief stint in politics, that he expects unflinching loyalty from his staff. So, you know, in the context of the video that we've gone over the last two and a half, three hours, where you have all these government officials that are having these meetings and talking about standing in solidarity, and you look at this, and, they, and we went over the document about resources for federal workers, how you should utilize leaking, and then these, these publications that are listed out here that are giving the examples of the articles with, will protect you and run interference. And I'll say to somebody familiar with the matter, somebody familiar with the, with this person's thinking. But really, it's just a leak uh, through in this bureaucracy. So this really highlights this, right? How many more do you got here, Millie? Let's see. I mean, there's quite a few. We don't have to read through all of them. Uh, just I'll summarize some of them so we can skip some of these ones. Like just basically the former Scalia clerk, offers legal advice, free representation to civil servants who defy Trump's illegal order. And that's just them encouraging, like, to try to be supportive, like, oh, we'll help you sue, you know, or we'll, we'll represent you if you uh, defy Trump's orders. Conservatives demanding details on federal workers' encryption use. Um, this one might be, I mean, this is just kind of more on... Um, I'll just read this first part. Republicans in Congress and their conservative allies are demanding details about federal workers' use of encrypted messaging apps, part of a broader 
counterattack on employees suspected of opposing President Donald Trump's agenda. So this is them like almost warning, like, watch out. The, the Republicans in Congress are going to crack down on us for these uh, encrypted communications that we're having, having, which, mind you, notice they kept, you know, in the chat, in the Zoom calls, they kept referring everyone to using Signal, which is an encrypted chat, leaks, tweets and real threats to democracy. Um, let me see. But the government's interest in secrecy must be balanced against the public's interests, which include access to information, exposure of wrongdoing, ensuring government accountability. The balance should normally lean heavily on the public's interest. So this is just them kind of, uh, you know, justifying what they're doing. Um, under executive order, which governs classification information may only be classified when disclosure would produce identifiable and Describable damage to national security, but anyone who has pursued uh, declassified information obtained through Freedom of Information Act uh, requests. They're basically saying like that they don't think it's really that big of a deal because, look, Chelsea Manning released all of this stuff and that wasn't that bad. Uh, and then leaks, whistleblowers, part of American culture, professors say. So this is them just talking about how this is all normal, like this is kind of normalizing the leaks and the whistleblowing. This is just part of the culture now. So they're kind of making it seem like um, this is normal. When it was actually extremely not normal, what was going on. So this is just kind of media narrative control. And then Trump-inspired encryption boom in leaky DC. Poisonous political divisions have spawned an encryption arms race across the Trump administration as both the president's advisors and career civil servants scramble to cover their digital tracks in a capital nervous about leaks. The surge in the U.S. of scrambled communication technology enabled by free smartphone apps such as WhatsApp and Signal could skirt and violate laws that require government records to be preserved and the public's business to be conducted in official channels. Several ethics experts, several ethics experts say it may even cloud future generations knowledge of the full history of Donald Trump's presidency, yada, yada, yada. Um, and then caution when, when draining the swamp, remember it's a very, very big swamp, but the folks who have come to town to drain the swamp need to realize is that 85% of the federal workforce lives, works, spends, and votes outside the Washington area. Feds in major centers with fewer people, but a higher percentage of federal workers than D.C. probably aren't much like their decent and their decadent and distant colleagues inside the Beltway. So they're they're kind of basically saying, uh, you know, that they are the swamp in essence, but they don't all live in D.C. So, yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> they're basically saying, like, good luck. Um, <clears throat> you guys are going to be able to handle this. You don't even know that we're out here. You're not, we're not inside the D.C. How do you know we're even here? Yeah, well, the Office of Personal Management does, ladies and gentlemen. We get that. We get we get that presidency in 2025. You watch, Mr. Big Swamp. I'm just saying, like, these people, man. And, and that's the thing. Like, this is a concentration of propaganda used through legacy media, mainstream media outlets to concentrate it into these trainings and these documents that we're going over. And they basically just one article after the other set the stage all the way through 
to quote unquote empower and stand in solidarity with your other employees, even though you guys are doing completely messed up stuff and you're going completely outside the norm, but we're going to have you believe that you're fighting the good fight. And you're finally in your entire existence as a governmental employee can do something about it to save democracy. And this is what they've done. Now we're getting into interfering in the 2020 election. What do you want to do here, Millie? Because I can keep going. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing. This next part is explosive. It really is explosive. And so, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, we've got 140 people in here right now. Maybe. uh, Everyone seems to be kind of tuned in on these clown show primaries, which I know. Really pointless because we already know Trump's going to be the the you know he's going to be the one right he's on the he's going to be the one on the ballot so maybe we yeah. do part two maybe we do part two another time but you know this is pretty explosive so I am tempted to go through this you know at least some of it you know but I don't know maybe I should I, I don't know I don't know this is this is the stuff that gets into this very first document here. Maybe we should just get into the up until, um, let me see, up until the election related resources. So just, just these last couple parts, which we don't have to read through all the stuff in these documents per se, but just a couple lines. So there's not much more, but, um, we could cover, we could do an entire space. I know. Maybe tomorrow, tomorrow or another day soon this week dedicated to this one specific topic which is the interference in the 2020 election i mean it really is and then january 6th that goes right after it i think we should i I think we should do part two just to be clear though i am leaving friday out of town i will be out of the country for a week so we could probably knock it out tomorrow um or thursday or thursday well here's the thing there's a lot more in this article uh, where it goes into like the backstory and the history of the sunrise stuff, which obviously we can get into, but I just want to briefly touch on this because I do want to get this out there um, and let people know that this is in the article to look at it and to share it um, because this is really bombshell information. So I will just read a little bit of this and then we will do, we'll, we'll talk and we'll do a space maybe tomorrow or the next day with whatever day you're free. And we'll go over it and, and dedicate more to it where we can actually go over the entire document line by line. But um, just to touch on it right now, I think that's a good idea. So I'll just just go over this first part. It says interfering in the 2020 election in the months leading up to the 2020 yeah, into in the months leading up to the 2020 election, Democrats took an entirely novel strategy in their efforts to cu- secure the Biden presidency. They poured all of their efforts into online organizing, utilizing Zoom and recruitment for volunteer activities to get out the vote. They heavily emphasized the importance that mail-in ballots would play in the 2020 presidential election due to the pandemic. The elderly population has long since took, took it upon themselves um, took upon themselves the patriotic citizens' duty of working the elections and assuming poll worker positions. As the election approached, media began circulating articles telling the elderly not to participate in the 2020 election and to stay home for the safety of their health. This created a shortage of volunteers to count the vote. 
Meanwhile, anti-Trump organizations were directing their members to participate participate in what appears to be election rigging efforts. The document titled Grassroots Emergency Election Protection Trifecta Action Guide by Harvey Wasserman was inside the group's movement resources. So this document, which uh, really and truly you can view, you can download on my website, um, it's pretty mind-blowing. All right, so it goes over the three pillars for the election. So pillar one is voter registration rolls for them to be able to win, right? Voter two, vote by mail. Uh, Sorry, pillar two, vote by mail. Pillar three, counting and recounting the ballots. So just, I have up here just pillar two. So just to kind of go into what they had written for for vote by mail, pillar two. Um, In this, which is really interesting, it says, in 2020, we expect the percentage of absentee or vote by mail ballots in many states to jump from 5% to as much as 80%. At its best, vote by mail can represent a historic transition from hackable electronic machines to universal paper ballots. It's long been the core system in Oregon, Washington, Colorado, Utah, and Hawaii. But it's now under attack. States like Georgia, sorry, Texas, Georgia, and Ohio are making ballots hard to get. The assault on the U.S. Postal Service throws their delivery into doubt. And states using vote by mail for the first time, to this extent, logistical vulnerabilities are significant. How effectively the grassroots EP, which is like election protectors, protection movement, protects vote by mail, which is VBM, could define 2020's outcome. So one, printing and publishing. Paper ballots must first be designed, printed, and published. Simple typos and deliberate manipulations can destroy elections. Quote unquote, butterfly ballots in Florida 2000 induced elderly voters to mistakenly choose Pat Buchanan. Do you think you could pick up reading trash? Oh, I just stepped, I just stepped away, but I can't hear in a minute. Yeah. Okay. It says, um, mistakenly chose Pat Buchanan absentee ballots in Ohio 2004 omitted John Kerry. EP activists must proofread all drafts all draft ballots before they go to the printer. So let me get this right. Election protection activists must proofread all draft ballots before they go to the printer. Guarantee enough are printed for all registered voters and make sure they get back to the election boards on time. Ink specifications must be varied so ballots will be readable in electronic imaging machines. What do you think that means? Yeah, I mean, being being able to print up ballots at will. I mean, that's essentially what I do. And then falling within the timeline to make sure that they get them there. That's why they're extending out the times for counting ballots in both directions, I might add. As far as I'm concerned, because I'm sitting over here, like when I was reading this document, I was sitting, I, I was going through a bunch of their internal documents and I, and I, and I found this one and I'm like, oh my God, um, I don't think, you know, these political activists are supposed to be printing ballots. 
And it even says here, simple typos and deliberate manipulations can destroy elections. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and, that's, and that's the thing. You did not have to have. So what's interesting about this is their experience from organizing and having hubs, as we were talking about with like the Sunrise Movement and everything. You don't have to have centralized people calling the shots. All you need to do is provide the resources for local areas based upon their state laws and local laws and and how they operate and how their organizations operate. Here, here is every tool that you need to subvert these elections and you can figure it out in your own area. That's what this is. This is decentralizing fraud. Well, what's interesting is like when they keep referring to EP activists or election protection activists, they say um, election protection activists must proofread all draft ballots before they go to the printer, guarantee enough are printed for all registered voters and make sure they get back to the election boards on time. So it sounds like these EP activists were the ones who were overseeing how everything was done correctly. And they actually, at the bottom of this document, they actually link to a site, which basically they call themselves election protection, um, basically election protection activists. So that's like an entire group of people that were the ones do like overseeing it, if that makes sense. Right, exactly. That's what I'm saying. So you don't even need entire armies to do this. You just need, a, like I was saying earlier, a few key place people within different levels of this entire operation that'll take care of everything. Yeah. And they're going to have to, like, there's going to have to be people facilitating and providing ballots to be printed on and, and, and machinery do that. Cause not everyone has that, right? Like that's, that's something that would take technical skills and abilities. Like that's, I don't think that's something that any regular person would be able to do. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really kind of interesting that they're spelling it out. But really, like the whole document, they're very much encouraging people to uh, sign up and participate in the election in these capacities. So they're like basically saying the 2020 election is not likely to be canceled or postponed, but it can be sabotaged or stolen. <laughs> It will not be enough this year merely to register and vote nowhere near. Those hoping for a fair outcome in the fall must now join election boards, become poll workers and poll watchers and more wherever possible. All citizens committed to American democracy must be present for every aspect of the 2020 election process, including the post-election ballot counting and recounting. Yep. So that's one. Let's do a space on let's do a space on this one entirely dedicated to this document and we could read through line by line and kind of go over some other information pertaining to it. Yeah, we can definitely do that. Um, and then also obviously as you wrap this up again the stuff that we've been talking about transition integrity project, uh, the count, sunrise zoom calls, hold the line. Uh, taking over the Capitol on January 6th, like all this stuff that we've been talking about for weeks now, um, maybe revisit that as well. Um, we'll try to fit one more in this week, like I said, and then I'm going to be out of town, out of the country for a week, uh, but then I'll be back. All right. That sounds great. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed the space and uh, I hope that it was it was educational and informational because we that's what we usually shoot for, right? We shoot for bringing actual receipts 
and real evidence to the table. We don't just, you know, get up here and just say things without actually backing up with what we're saying with actual receipts. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please share the article. Please share this information. This information has been heavily, heavily, heavily suppressed. It's insane. Um, but I think like a really key thing to do would be to be, you know, just tweeting at your, or what do they call it now? Is it, it's, is it still tweeting or what is it when it's on X? Xing was <laughs> tweeting at your um, congressional representatives and asking them to, to do something about this, asking them to, uh, to do their jobs, investigate this further, because there's a lot more people on these calls that, that we have yet to identify. And these are people operating inside of our government, as well as the ones that are still there working there, you know, that we have identified. So yeah, there needs to be an investigation. There does. It does. And um, I, while we were having this space, I had some, I have some friends that uh, either contract or work for the government. A couple of them were messaging me. They're like, no, nah, this is, this is highly illegal, whatever I need to do. And I'm like, I mean, you can't just go to like department head and say, hey, these people on Twitter are talk are the X or talk about this stuff. It needs to hit, it needs to hit large platforms. And then from there, I can start pushing it to Congress people and then we can start getting investigations. But it's gonna take everybody sharing it. If you have any access, collective resources, friendships, whatever it's gonna take. And uh, I know Millie's at your disposal, whatever you need to answer questions. And I'm obviously I'm here as well. Uh, and Jen is, of course. So we're, we're all well steeped in this in this information. So yeah, Jen. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Thanks, Millie, for having me and letting me co-host. Appreciate you guys. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. And I just wanted to point out, tomorrow night at America, uh, tomorrow night at 9 o'clock, America Mission is hosting Jennifer McWilliams and Courage is the Habit. Uh, it's an action space to make, uh, to send emails and, and letters to the main government to stop that kids transgender bill. Uh, so we'll be doing another one of those spaces tomorrow night, nine o'clock. Make sure you're following Vinny who will be hosting it. Um, and then of course, America mission. Thanks guys. Thanks Jen. Thanks everyone. All right. Thanks a lot, guys, for being here, and we will see you soon. Keep your eye out for the next one.